Are Eric Thames and Mitch Hanniger really this good? Are Carlos Beltran, Tim Anderson, and Jose Bautista really this bad? We'll talk about that and more with Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 21st. It's show number 15 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Mike Podhorzer, the Rotographs columnist at Fangraphs.com, about making early roster moves, about planning ahead, pitchers with swing and miss stuff inside the zone, his studs and duds, and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Ryan Bloomfield, looking at Starling Marte, Washington's closer situation, the Dodgers' rotation, and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson, looking at injuries to Josh Donaldson, Malik Smith, Zach Britton, Marcus Semyon, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the underrated effects of batting order position. In our Frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at St. Louis outfielder Jose Martinez and Philadelphia right-handed starter Nick Pavetta. In our Weekend Pitcher Matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at Arizona left-hander Robbie Ray and Mets star Matt Harvey. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about early weirdness on the pitcher's mounds. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Eric Thames leads baseball in homers, total bases, runs created, and extra base hits. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League. And pinch hitting for our old friend Harold Nichols is BaseballHQ.com analyst and Baseball HQ Radio commentator Ryan Bloomfield. Ryan, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for pinch hitting again. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it as always. Well, Ryan, the big news of the week in the National League clearly comes out of Pittsburgh, where outfielder Starling Marte has been suspended for PED use. This is a terrific blow to the Pittsburgh Pirates, of course, and also a really uh, serious blow to a lot of fantasy owners who took Starling Marte for big bucks or top round. Yeah, um, obviously that's that's the lead news of the week, and and pretty pretty shocking. It, it, to me, it was it was shocking. Marte actually tested positive earlier this spring, and it was it was announced finally this week when when Marte lost his appeal. So pretty tight lid on that uh, MLB appeals process. Little did we know when when those of us were drafting this spring, and I was a big Marte guy. Uh, little did we know that he would likely be suspended at the time, but uh, but that's neither here nor there uh, right now. Rick Green covered the the playing time fallout in Pittsburgh. Andrew McCutcheon's gonna gonna move from right field back to his old stomping grounds in center and uh, right field gonna be occupied by a, a mix of guys, mostly Adam Frazier though. He, Frazier started in right field. 
the, the day that the suspension was announced, um, Tuesday, April 18th. Uh, looked at Frazier uh, this week. Frazier you know, doesn't have much pop, but he could give a decent batting average. Uh, 82% contact rate in 146 at-bats last season, 84% so far this year. Frazier has some speed, too, to pair with that batting average. He swiped 17 bags in AAA last year with a, with a 132 speed score um, in the majors in, in 2016. So that's that's impressive. We're Projecting a 288 batting average for Frazier with nine steals over over 300 at bats. Certainly not Starling Marte replacement level numbers, but you're not going to get that off the waiver wire at this point. So uh, Frazier is serviceable with that batting average and, and some steal upside in deeper leagues. A um, couple other names just to throw in the right field mix. John Jaso, Jose Asuna, who was called up this week. Really fantasy irrelevant. Uh, maybe Jaso if you're in an OBP league, but, uh, but, 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 but count on Frazier in, in right field for the majority of the time. And actually, I'm going to be asking Mike Podhorzer about Adam Frazier in our feature interview a little later, but I'm curious what you think about uh, McCutcheon. They moved him to right field in part because they thought it might help him get his some of his offensive luster back, and, and now that they move him back into center field with the added defensive burdens and all that kind of stuff, is there any concern here that uh, moving Andrew McCutcheon actually costs him as far as his uh, offensive production goes? That's, that's certainly an interesting point. Uh, center field, like you mentioned, is very taxing. It's McCutcheon uh, in a lot of the you know, with McCutcheon's decline, a lot of folks have said, yeah, he's 30, but that, but he's an old 30 because he's spent so much time in center. Um, so, and we've seen that with, with kind of the speed decline in McCutcheon in recent years. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't read too much into that in terms of McCutcheon's 2017 outlook. I still like him to bounce back, um, in, in most categories except for the steals. The Pirates also have a really top-rated uh, outfield prospect in Austin Meadows. Any chance we see him coming up uh, sooner rather than later? Yeah, a lot of folks have brought up Austin Meadows, and he's the he's the shiny new toy, the prospect that that everyone knows about in Pittsburgh. I don't see that happening anytime soon. I don't see a call up imminent with Austin Meadows. Uh, Pittsburgh has been, you know, historically conservative with their their highly touted call ups. Look at Gregory Polanco as a recent example of that, and even with Polanco, uh, Pittsburgh's front office recently mentioned that uh, if they could do it over again, they might have kept Polanco down even longer um, if they could. So Austin Meadows also, he's he's struggling down in AAA in Indianapolis. Meadows is seven for his first 45 uh, with 13 strikeouts um, in that span and, and one home run. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Pittsburgh, I think, to rush Meadows. I don't think he's ready. Um, obviously, you know, the long-term upside with Meadows is huge. He was He was a top 10 prospect. On our preseason HQ 100, we've got 280 batting average, 25 plus home run potential at, at Meadows's peak. But I would not count on that coming in 2016, even if he does get called up uh, sometime this summer. It's an interesting story, and it's of course a sad story as far as uh, these PED uh, allegations and and uh, disciplinary actions take uh, Starling Marte, one of the bright stars of baseball, out of the action for the next uh, half season. That's too bad. Uh, over in Washington, we've had an, another reasonably interesting story with some fantasy implications. They've removed Blake Trinan from the closer role. He was kind of a surprise guy to get the role in the first place. Now he's out, and they're going to split the duties in kind of a half committee. What's up there? 
Yeah, Dusty Baker's going to go with uh, Coda Glover and, and Sean Kelly to split closing duties in uh, in replacing Blake Trinan, who didn't last long in the role. Trinan was a surprise uh, choice right before uh, right before opening day to be the Nats closer. Between Coda Glover and Sean Kelly, I, I I like Kelly a lot more. Sean Kelly's the the most skilled reliever on the roster and and has been. Uh, Kelly's got four straight seasons of a 120 plus uh, base performance value. BPV, if you're not familiar with that, that's our catch-all skills metric that uh, looks at strikeouts, walks, ground balls, etc. And and 120 plus to be that high for four years in a row, that kind of track record as a reliever is uh, is is pretty impressive to me. So Sean Kelly gets strikeouts in bunches. Had a had a 16% swinging strike rate in 2016. He's got great control with a first pitch strike rate in the high 60s. Um, you know, no issues there. The, the one Achilles heel, if you will, with, uh, with Sean Kelly has been the long ball. He's a fly ball pitcher. He's got a 48% career fly ball rate. And, uh, and, and we've seen that this season. Kelly's given up a home run. He gave up a home run in each of his his first three outings, but uh, compared to to Glover, who you know, I'm I'm not totally sure why Glover is even in the mix at this point. As as Phil Hertz noted in in, in his playing time today column, uh, Glover has little MLB experience, let alone higher leverage experience. Uh, Glover's before entering entering this season, Glover had just 24 innings at AAA, 20 innings in the majors, and uh, didn't post the best of skills in his in his major league um, cameo last year. 7.3 strikeouts per nine, 3.2 walks per nine. So I think pushing Coda Glover into a closer role without that without that track record on a contender would be asking a lot. So uh, I I do like Kelly quite a bit more than Coda Glover. Yeah, to tell you the truth, Ryan, I couldn't even understand why why uh, Coda Glover was even mentioned in this, and frankly, I didn't understand why Sean Kelly wasn't the closer from the get-go. It was one of those weird uh, Dusty Baker decisions yeah. that nobody understands. The 191 base performance value for Sean Kelly is a super interesting thing because at 200 at BaseballHQ.com, we call that vintage Eck because Dennis Eckersley, uh, one of the greatest <laughs> closers in history, was yeah. routinely at 200 BPV or plus. So if you're floating around that 200 base performance value, you're doing a lot of things very right. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite terms on the site, vintage Eck. Uh, nowadays, you've, you know, in that 200 BPV um, realm, you've got guys like Aroldis Chapman and Kenley Jansen. Now, I'm not saying Kelly is those those type of guys, but he's got that potential. The skills are, are amazing with Sean Kelly. A comment I have about the uh, high, relatively high home run rate is Sean Kelly profiles as a guy who likes to pitch up in the zone. It's a where it's where the strikeouts are mm-hmm. really nowadays. If you can pump a, a good fastball past the guy at the letters or at the armpits, uh, you're going to get a lot of strikeouts. And part of the price you pay is every so often when they get hold of one, partially because of the great velocity coming in, it's going to leave with some uh, pizzazz on it and may sneak over the fence once in a while. And I think that's just something we have to accept to get all the strikeouts. Absolutely. And and the thing boating in, in, in Kelly's favor is he's been pretty tight with his walk rate. So if he gives up those home runs, um, hopefully there won't be too many guys on base and there'll be more solo shots than anything else. Could the Nats, considering they believe they're a contender for a World Series title, maybe go after an established closer like David Robertson? Yeah, absolutely. I think this could end a lot differently than what we're seeing now. You know, one thing we haven't mentioned with Kelly is he does have some injury history, so it's something to to track there. But uh, I do think 
you know, longer term, a, a trade is, is looking more and more likely than that's uh, contention window with their current roster is actually starting to, to close. Uh, Max Scherzer's not getting any younger. Um, Bryce Harper is going to be a free agent at the end of next season. Um, Strasburg free agent in the next year or two as well. So, um, I think Nationals go for it. David Robertson, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks bring up his name in Chicago if they look to sell in the first half. Um, so despite the, the excellent skills from Kelly, I wouldn't open up the fab wallet completely and go all out assuming he's going to be the the Nationals closer all season. I think there's a good chance that by uh, by the trade deadline or sometime this summer, the Nationals closer is is not currently on their roster. Ryan, you know, it's something of a, an interesting thing when a pitcher gets a blister. We think a uh, blister, no big deal, but it is <laughs> a really big deal for pitchers. Uh, earlier this season, we've already seen some guys leave games because of blisters and even go on the DL because of blisters. Uh, Rich Hill of the Dodgers, the latest, he left a game with uh, what is called a blister from hell, I guess. And this is covered both by Jock Thompson in Playing Time Today and in Matt Cederholm's terrific column, The Big Hurt, an injury review column. What's the story with Rich Hill? Yeah, unfortunately for Rich Hill, it's, it's the same story as last year. Um, and off season, you know, a lot of folks drafted Rich Hill in hopes that the blister would heal this off season. Obviously, it didn't. And if it's not healed now, I don't see how it's going to heal in the middle of, of 2017. Uh, you know, there's been talk of Hill's blister being from uh, from his curveball that added stress on the finger. Uh, and maybe throwing that pitch less, but if Rich Hill throws his curveball less, he's not the same guy anyway. So, uh, you know, there's also been talk of LA maybe moving Hill to the bullpen to help manage his blister. I don't, I don't really see how that helps his blister or his fantasy value. So, um, you know, unfortunately, Rich Hill, it, it, it's, it's not going to go away. If you're in shallow leagues or even medium sized leagues without many, uh, reserve spots or without any DL spots, I, certainly think at this point it is justifiable to look at, at cutting Rich Hill because, uh, I mean, he simply cannot pitch with, with this blister and how long it's been going on. Hasn't anybody in Major League Baseball heard of the pickle juice uh, answer for blisters? <laughs> Send that over to LA's training staff. We'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll try anything at this point, I would, I would imagine. And if it doesn't work, at least you still got the pickles, I guess. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Short-term replacement in LA's rotation. What are they going to do to fill that slot? Yeah, short term is, is they're going to fill, it looks like Alex Wood, uh, and Jock mentioned this in the playing time today piece. Alex Wood, actually Alex Wood's a great speculative play. Really like Alex Wood's skills despite the injury risk. Wood did deal with uh, elbow issues last summer, but, uh, but some intriguing skills bookended that, uh, that summer DL stint. Hood, or Hood, Wood gets plenty of, uh, Wood gets plenty of ground balls, had a 53% ground ball rate in 2016, 49% for his career, and he's able to to miss bats. Uh, Wood had a 9.8 strikeouts per nine, 332 expected ERA. And we talked about BPV earlier. Uh, Wood's BPV as a starter, 128, which is which is excellent for a starter. So Alex Wood should post some some pretty great numbers, I think, um, as long as he's in the lineup. Can't count on him for the full season uh, with that injury risk, but uh, but while he's in there, he's certainly worth starting in, in the majority of your leagues. Yeah, I think anytime you're looking at starting pitchers, a base performance value over 70 or 75 or so is really getting the job done. And at 128, that's really worth looking at. Uh, what about yeah. Julio Arias? 
Yeah, and that's kind of the elephant in the room here with L.A. Um, you know, L.A.'s got not only Rich Hill with injury risk, but they've got some other guys. Brandon McCarthy, Hinjin Rue is, is also, uh, he's had shoulder problems in the past. So there are other other health risks. And I I think with uh, with Julio Urias, it's just a matter of time until he's called up. Um, Urias, at this point, has little left to prove in the minors, which is kind of crazy uh, at 20 years old to have little left to prove in the minors. But, uh, but he's obviously high. Highly touted. We saw flashes of what Urias can do in 2016. He had uh, more strikeouts than innings pitched, a 3.39 ERA in 77 innings. So um, I would expect to see Urias soon. Uh, we're projecting a 3.29 ERA for him in 93 innings this season, and, and the, the the innings pitch total is the big, you know, important part of that. Urias projection. LA really wants to limit his uh, his major league innings. I don't see him really pitching more than a hundred major league innings um, this season. LA will, you know, if they can get in the playoffs, want to save him uh, for that. But, uh, but, but yeah, he's Urias he has the stuff to produce right away, and he's a fine speculation for the second half, even if he's not in the rotation until uh, until later on in May. And staying with Los Angeles, Logan Forsythe, they signed him in the offseason to man second base, but he's going to the disabled list with a toe injury. Jock Thompson again covering this for playing time today. Uh, what's the story with Logan Forsythe and his uh, woeful toe? <laughs> yeah, Jock's been busy covering uh, Dodger ish- injury issues and in playing time today. It's it, Forsythe uh, to the DL is a big blow for an L.A. team that struggles against left-handed pitching. Um, Jock noted in the piece, LA is saying it's, it's a two week recovery for Logan Forsyth. I, I think that's a little aggressive. I'm no doctor, but, uh, it's a broken toe. Uh, I'd be interested to see what Matt Cedarholm thinks in, in his big hurt injury analysis column that, that you mentioned earlier, PD. I, it, I, I would take the over on that two week, uh, two week outage. So. At second base in, in LA to, to backfill Forsyth, we're going to see Chase Utley, uh, really the majority of the time. Utley, you know, been around, been around forever. He struggled, uh, so far this season. He's won for his first 20, but, uh, obviously still very early. Utley's 38, but, but he's, he put together decent skills, at least against right-handed pitching last season. He, he got on base at a 343 clip against righties in 2016 with above average contact, uh, league average power. So, so if Utley's getting the majority of at bats, um, he's certainly an NL only play um, that you could uh, that you could target. Even though I think we'll probably see a platoon because uh, because Utley struggles against lefties. And usually those uh, wrong side platoon guys aren't that valuable in uh, shallow leagues, even fifteen mixed. So you should be able to find something better than a left-handed facing platoon guy. But in uh, in National League only, uh, platoon guys can be pretty valuable. So who is likely to face the left-handers at second base for the Dodgers while uh, they're out uh, missing Logan Forsythe? A couple guys will be on that short side of the platoon. Uh, Chris Taylor uh, started the April 19th game against uh, lefty Tyler Anderson. Taylor is, you know, was a one-time, you know, shiny prospect with Seattle. If we remember a few years back, he was battling Brad Miller for, for playing time at, at shortstop. But, uh, but like you mentioned, PD, being on a short side of a platoon, hitting, hitting only lefties is, you, you've got to be really good to have really any kind of fantasy value. And Chris, Chris Taylor doesn't really have that. He hasn't shown much at the major league level with 300 at bats so far. He's a 238 hitter, 71% contact rate, 64 power index, which is well below league average. So, um, 
Not much there with Taylor. Uh, Kike Hernandez is another guy who could uh, see some plate appearances at second base against lefties, um, even though he's in the outfield as well. Off year in 2016, uh, hit 190 uh, last year, but uh, but Kike did hit 300 in 2015 uh, with better skills. And, uh, and so he does have that, but again, not enough real playing opportunity for Kike or Chris Taylor to be fantasy targets as long as LA is using them, uh, exclusively against left-handed pitching. All right, Ryan, really appreciate you taking uh, the time to step up for uh, Harold Nichols this week and pinch hit on the National League side, and uh, do appreciate you uh, also contributing all the, uh, playing time commentaries. Who are you talking about in this week's show? talking about a couple examples but the main theme of my playing time segment is going to be the the underrated news of changes in the batting order how moves up or down the batting order can actually mean a lot in terms of plate appearances and counting stats over uh over the course of a full season so uh, i'll check that out later in the show it is an underrated aspect of player projection and, and player analysis, and it's a, a good idea to mention it. As always, coming up with new ideas is what we do at BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield, thanks a million. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, sounds good, PD. Have a good one. Ryan Bloomfield is a BaseballHQ.com analyst and the director of social media for the site. And, of course, as you've heard, he does a terrific job pinch-hitting for our regulars whenever the need arises. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com director of news and analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How are you doing? I think I'm doing better than the Toronto Blue Jays are. I guess we'll start there. Uh, They took a real big hit uh, with Josh Donaldson having a calf strain that could keep him out until mid-May, maybe even a little longer. And uh, it's pretty obvious that Toronto doesn't have a third-base replacement standing by. A lot of uh, questionable names, shall we say. Yeah, this is a really dismal outlook. Uh, I was was surprised at how dismal it was when I looked at the playing time situation there. they're gonna. It, it, it looks like recently they've had Darwin Barney uh, playing a lot of third base, and uh, this is a career 224 hitter who hit 186 and 183 at bats last year, and he has no power whatsoever. They have uh, Chris Coglin, who would seem to be at, at least a, a reasonable speculation based on what he did uh, uh, the two years before last year, but he's had six at bats all season, um, and he really struggled last year. They got another guy, Tyler Kelly, who replaced Donaldson on the roster, but he really hasn't offered much in the minors. I'm not sure what they do here. I guess that makes three of us who don't know what's going on in Toronto. You, me, and the Blue Jays are really uh, struggling to score runs and losing Josh Donaldson and having Jose Bautista barely hitting. He's not even hitting 200 at the moment, I don't think. His on-base percentage is barely over that. It's, it's a pretty tough situation in Toronto, and I don't see how it gets any better. Yeah, um, again, uh, no depth at all at third base, and you just, you know, expanded it to the to the rest of the lineup. Uh, there's not a lot of major league depth on that team, uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of spots, and now they're starting to lose pitchers. Yeah, they are. Uh, Jay Happ uh, left a game. It was pretty scary to watch, Doc, I don't mind telling you. I have Jay Happ on my AL tout team, and I was watching the game, and he was just coasting along. He was pitching great, and all of a sudden, he threw a breaking pitch, and he literally hopped off the mound like it was on fire. He jumped off, and he grabbed his elbow, and I thought, oh, there there we go. That's it, and he went for an MRI, and it was only a, a bit of a strain and not a real big problem, some inflammation in there, so they're going to let him rest for a couple of starts, and, and he's supposed to be coming back. Meanwhile, though Aaron Sanchez got a blister issue he's uh, had that trouble before and now he's got it again so they're down to really three quality starters uh, three major league level starters it's uh, it's again a pretty tough situation 
Yeah, when I think of blisters, obviously being out here in SoCal, I think of Rich Hill, and that's not a real good situation over here. Uh, but this elbow thing doesn't sound good. It was reported out here as elbow inflammation. I didn't see what, what you saw. I didn't see the actual injury. Uh, it sounds like it's a little more serious than they're reporting. Elbows are never good. No, it never is good, Jock. And of course, when you see something like that and you hear the word elbow, the first thing you think of is ulnar collateral ligament, Tommy John, and all that kind of thing. So any news is good news if it's not that. And I think that's something that the Jays are hanging on to. Having said that, there's really no fixed date for his return. As I said, they're hoping for a couple of starts and then back he comes. But I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, and they got guys like uh, Casey Lawrence, who I hadn't heard of until a few days ago, and Matt Latos, who we've all heard of, but uh, is long past his prime. They're the ones who are expected to cover the gaps in the rotation while while Sanchez and uh, and Happ are out. Um, not a good situation uh, uh, either way. These guys don't get a lot of strikeouts. Uh, uh, Latos's ERA has been in the fives in his MLB efforts recently. Uh, um, Lawrence is one of those uh, low-dom, control, tightrope walkers uh, uh, in the minors. Uh, Not a lot of major league experience. Maybe Mike Bolsinger later on. uh, He's had his moments out here with the Dodgers. He hasn't pitched well lately. uh, But there's just not a lot of major league uh, uh, experience, major league ready experience to to take advantage of. It it offers an interesting opportunity for fantasy owners if they can if they can make the right call. But I don't see what the right call is right now. Well, one name you might want to keep in the back of your mind is Joe Biagini, who's uh, currently one of the relief pitchers in Toronto that they rely on pretty heavily. But he was a starter for four seasons in the San Francisco organization in the minor leagues. And in 2012, he had an ERA around three and a, and a whip around 1.1 as a starter. Now, the drawback to that is when he was a starter, he wasn't much of a strikeout pitcher. But already this year, we've seen that his strikeout rate is all the way down to four and a half strikeouts per nine. So maybe, I don't know. My wife will be real happy about that because she she owns him in one of our deep league fantasy leagues. So uh, let's hope that Biagini gets a chance. The uh, already fairly thin shortstop pool in the American League got a little thinner when uh, Marcus Simeon of the Oakland A's broke his wrist. He'll be out for a couple of months. Uh, they have a few choices, but like Toronto, none of the choices is particularly appealing. Arad Trudell covered this for Baseball HQ in playing time today. You covered in playing time tomorrow American League West coverage. What are they going to do at the shortstop position in Oakland? Well, it's like you're suggesting here. It was a big hit offensively for Oakland, and, and they were struggling offensively, and at least until a few games ago anyway. They're going to miss Semyon's home run bat. Uh, this got everyone excited about the possibility of Franklin Barreto, the big Oakland prospect, coming up. But that's not likely going to happen quickly, both if you believe what Oakland management's saying. And if you really look at that organization situation, they're not contending. Uh, they don't like to start service clocks too early in Oakland as a rule. And there are all kinds of reasons for the A's to leave Barreto and AAA until at least the Super 2 date passes in uh, in June, and perhaps even longer. I mean, he, he's a great prospect. He's red hot in the early going. He's hitting 340 at uh, AAA Nashville. But he's had all of 70 AAA at-bats, um, and uh, he's, he's striking out a lot down there as well, too. So I, I think they wanted to get some experience. Oakland's likely going to go with Adam Rosales and uh, and Chad Pinder in the interim, at least for the next uh, couple of months, both of whom are a little bit of intriguing, but they're not exactly slam dunk fantasy choices.
Over the last couple of games, both of them have hit home runs, but I remember Adam Rosales from years ago. He's always been a pretty lightweight hitter, not just in the home run department, but generally he's not much of an offensive threat. He's not much of a stolen base guy. He's an okay player, the kind of okay player that Oakland seems to make a a lot of use of, but it's pretty much always been part-time. Can Adam Rosales step up and be a uh, a first stringer? Yeah, this is what's really strange. Um, If you look at Rosales last year, which was in Petco Park of all places. Now, granted, Petco is a a lot better hitting park than it used to be and and probably better than most people realize right now. But this is a guy who actually hit 13 home runs in just 214 at-bats last year with San Diego. He had totally changed his approach last year. His his, uh, walk rate was 12%. He had a 46% fly ball rate. He was really sitting on and, and loading up on pitchers. He had a 22% home run fly ball rate, and he hit a career high in home runs. It's probably going to be a, a difficult repeat at his age. He's 34. Even if you believe that his change in approach is sustainable, and 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 like you said, he's a career 227 home run hitter. So um, it, it, it's a fascinating situation to watch. And like you said, he's hitting in the early going. Yeah, 227 batting average hitter, I think, and uh, uh, I believe his contact rate in 2016 really demonstrates how much he was opening up trying to chase power. He's under 60% contact, which is terrible. All of a sudden, getting some regular playing time, I just don't know. Uh, what do you know about Chad Pinder? Again, I, I heard him hit a home run the other night. Yeah, Pinder was more intriguing back at the end of 2015 uh, when he actually hit 317 at the AA level with some pop, and he finished as the MVP MVP runner-up in the Texas League that year. He had a torrid second half. I was watching him then, but he really struggled at AAA. He regressed. He he began to swing and miss a little bit more, and he's had contact issues both in spring training and even early this year in Nashville before he got called up. although he did have 12 hits and 37 at-bats. He can sting the ball when he, when he gets a hold of it, but his plate approach and, and his uh, pitch selection just isn't very good. Uh, he did hit a home run the other night. The uh, thing with him is he's only 25, and, and it, it, you know we both know that prospects rarely grow to the moon. It's hard to tell whether his current issues are just temporary and resolvable, but uh, at least he's young and he's going to get opportunity. The one thing in his favor, I'll say as a speculative pick, is that he was a pretty highly regarded prospect, and sometimes we get a little bit uh, impatient with guys like that. They come up, they don't do well, and uh, we discard them, and and we tend to forget about them, and then they figure things out. Maybe they get a little bigger, maybe get a little stronger, start playing in better parks, for one thing, and, and they have a few things go right for them, and all of a sudden they can recover. Now, I'm not suggesting that Chad Pinder's going to end up being the second coming of Cal Ripken, but I think there's a chance here, a better chance than Rosales, shall we say, that Chad Pinder could end up being a useful fantasy asset. Yeah, this sort of a situation is always interesting just because, like you said, of, of Pinder's pedigree. He's shown that in the high minors he can actually hit and he can, and he can sting the ball. And if and when that light goes on can always be a mystery. I mean, sometimes it does happen in, in better parks where the lighting is better. Maybe he Maybe he just learned something. Who knows? But uh, the opportunity is is it, it, it is there. And if and if you need a shortstop or a middle infield play, uh, you know he maybe he's worth a shot. Jock, you know I, I make a habit of not buying closers at draft, and I di- again did the same thing this year. And uh, the one of the reasons is I just don't think any of them is particularly reliable. And coming into this year, if anybody was going to be a reliable closer, top dollar closer, Zach Britton of the Orioles, I think he went for twenty one or twenty two dollars in my Tout American League league. 
Guess what? He's got a strained forearm, always bad news, and he's going on the DL. Strained forearm also is often a precursor to elbow problems. So this all is not good news for Baltimore or for Zach Britton owners. So what is Baltimore going to do to cope, and what can fantasy owners do to take advantage? Yeah, Britton had some issues this spring, too. Uh, he was sidelined for about a week and a half, uh, and the MRI news isn't good. I'm, I think we're waiting on the results on that as we tape this thing. Uh, the good news for Baltimore is their pen is pretty decent. There's lots of guys who can close games, starting with Brad uh, Brad Brock. He's the early favorite. And Darren O'Day, who actually has saved 15 games over the past four seasons uh, behind various closers, and he might have been the fave this year, would it were it not for uh, the injury plague 2016 that he had. They also have Michael Givens uh, in long relief, who you and I have discussed in the past and both like. Uh, and uh, newcomer uh, Donnie Hart is a ground baller, uh, kind of a soft tosser. He was very good last year, and he's been so far this year. So the Orioles have talent, but this is still a big blow for their pitching staff. Well, I agree that it is. I want to mention Donnie Hart. I happened to be at the Jays-Orioles game on the weekend, and Donnie Hart did not look good. He was getting balls up, and they were hitting him pretty hard. But what did you mean that this is a huge blow for the entire staff? Well, this is a, a pretty bad Oriole rotation. It's really propped up by the pen. A guy like Gibbons is coming in and pitching a lot of innings in middle relief. Uh, he, uh, he started to tire a little bit last year. Um, this kind of an injury shortens the pen. It puts more pressure on it over the long haul if Britain is out for a while. And you don't know how it's going to respond over the, lo- over the long term. Anytime something like this happens, it, it creates opportunities and saves for fantasy o- owners uh, but, but, uh, and down the line as well. But uh, um, it, it's hard to say how the, where this pitching staff goes from here. The interesting thing is that based on what's happening in Major League Baseball, a lot of these save opportunities could be spread around a lot of Oriole pitchers. Yeah, I think that's something to think about as well. And also, when you're talking about bullpens, I think it's easier to find bullpen support than it is to find almost anything else. You, you, you only need two decent pitches. I don't know what's available in Baltimore's farm system, but there could be Rule 5 guys uh, floating around, guys that are uh, looking for a spot. I just don't think it's going to be that difficult for them to fill the body s- slots in the in the bullpen. Now, moving everybody up uh, one notch may create an opening at the bottom, which may not be filled by a really trem- tremendous pitcher, but for fantasy purposes, we never draft those guys anyway. In Texas, Sam Dyson uh, was put out of his misery, a really poor opening with he'll be going on the DL. Ryan Bloomfield and I talked about this last week, so what's the latest news? Let's, this is actually a, a, at least a somewhat comparable situation to Baltimore. Obviously, Texas has a, a better rotation, certainly at the front, than the Orioles do. But the back end is a real question mark. And the Angels, and the I'm sorry, the Angels, the Rangers actually have a really good bullpen that could uh, could also spread the saves around. Uh, Matt Bush looks like the current fave, although he's had some mysterious off and on again shoulder issues that have been puzzling, particularly given that he continues to look terrific when he does pitch. Uh, the Rangers also have recalled uh, Keone Kella, uh, who they sent to the minors for disciplinary reasons. They have Jose Leclerc, who's really looked terrific in the early going. They have Jake Diekman on the DL, no, no telling when he's going to return, and then you, you could have Dyson return. So um, interesting situation in Texas. They could also spread some saves around. And it seems like it might be the, the logical thing for them to do. They have four sort of decent guys. Maybe it makes more sense for them to play matchups than it does to, for them to play you're the closer, you're the setup guy type roles. Yeah, and that seems to be the way it's going in Major League Baseball, and there's a lot to it. A lot of teams are, are real successful in, uh, in that mode right now. 
Finally, in Tampa, the Rays are wrestling with injuries of their own, uh, starting with Malik Smith, who uh, hurt his hamstring. I know a lot of owners took a chance on Malik Smith, expecting quite a few stolen bases. You won't be getting any for the next while when he's on the DL, and maybe when he comes back, he'll have to take it easy on that regard. And uh, first of all, let's talk about Malik Smith, what's going on there, who's taking his spot. Well, the Rays are still waiting for Colby Rasmus to make his 2017 debut off the DL. He's had some hip and groin problems. I personally just don't see the value there. I think he's a, a left-handed uh, home run hitting, uh, batting average killing uh, platoon guy, uh, maybe a good defender, but uh, we'll see how that works in, in May when uh, when Rasmus comes back. Uh, the Rays have actually been better than I've expected them to be offensively in the early going, and they're moving different bodies in and out now that uh, Smith is also gone. They've been playing Peter Borjos and Shane Peterson, uh, even Corey Dickerson in left field with uh, Ricky Weeks taking Dickerson's spot at DH. So um, th- there's not a lot of advantage to be taken care to be taken uh, f- uh, fantasy-wise with Smith out. Smith's really missing a golden opportunity, and hamstring tightness doesn't bode well for his running game. He started out really well. He was making 86% contact, three stolen bases in his first 22 at bats. So this is a tough break. Hopefully, it's just a ten-day thing for him. Well, as uh, as I said earlier, even if he comes back quickly from the DL, there's no guarantees that he's going to start running again because they're going to want to take it easy on that hamstring. Uh, meanwhile, Jake Odorizzi, the pitcher, is also on the ten-day DL. What's going on there? Yeah, he's also got a hamstring problem. It's uh, a little better for a pitcher than it is for a base stealer. Uh, it's, at least it's better than an arm injury. Um, so far, uh, Erasmo Ramirez uh, has been around for a while, jack-of-all-trades swingman. He's filled in just fine. He pitched very well the other night. Uh, he's not a world beater, and he doesn't strike out many anymore, but he gets ground balls and seems to know what he's doing out there. He's, uh, he's picked up a couple of wins. Uh, he's got an ERA around three for the Rays. Uh, uh, interesting short-term play, at least. I actually have Erasmo Ramirez on my roster in tout, and I, I grabbed him as a potential closer because I wasn't sure that what they had going there was all that great, but I'm, I'm happy so far. Now, here's something interesting. Because Ramirez was pitching, I was listening to the game on XM while I was driving through a truly pelting rainstorm here in the Waterloo area in uh, western Ontario. And uh, I was listening to the game, and the, the Rays announcers were talking about Erasmo Ramirez and saying that one of the reasons the team was putting him out there as a replacement starter was to drum up trade interest. So if, if, uh, if you play in a league where Ramirez getting traded out of the league would cost you his, his spot and his stats, think carefully about adding him to your roster, especially if it costs you anything. Yeah, that's interesting to know, too, because let's face it, uh, starting pitchers, good starting pitchers, reliable ones, even at the back end, are really tough to find right now. So if if Erasmo Ramirez gets a full-time starting job, uh, he's an attractive commodity. For one place, wouldn't Toronto like to give him a try? Yeah, isn't that the truth? You know, put that in in the Blue Jay front office here. It's pretty hard to make a deal inside your division, though, I think. Uh, Well, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out with a raft of bad news. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk to you again next week. Maybe something good will happen. Okay, PD. We'll see you. Jock Thompson is a BaseballHQ.com analyst and covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. We'll have a quick break here, then we'll be back with Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs.com next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, minor league analyst for BaseballHQ.com, and I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about the 2017 edition of the Minor League Baseball Analyst, our annual guide to the prospects and trends that will help you win your fantasy leagues. 
The minor league baseball analyst has scouted more than a thousand prospects using Baseball HQ's exclusive player potential rating systems, sabermetric analysis, performance trends, and major league equivalencies from the past five seasons. And there's lots more as well. Order your minor league baseball analyst today for just $19.95 plus shipping and handling. And if you order directly from baseballhq.com slash MLBA17 and enter the promo code MINERS at checkout, you get $5 off your order. Plus, you also get a PDF copy of the book. And if that isn't enough, you get online updates for all 30 organizational lists and our top 50 fantasy prospects. Today's winning fantasy baseball players get on top and stay on top by knowing which prospects are the wannabes, the maybes, and the gonnabes. Go to the top. Go to BaseballHQ.com MLBA17 and order your minor league baseball analyst today. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by an old friend of the podcast, Mike Podhorzer, the Rotographs columnist at Fangraphs.com. Mike, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's a pleasure being back, and I'm excited to get the season going. Two weeks in, and or it's actually two and a half weeks in. We've got a whole lot to analyze so far. How are your teams doing? It's something that I don't normally really check this early in the season, but I think I've been checking a little more often for whatever reason than I have in the past. Every team is, is doing fine, satisfactory, I would say. They're all in the top half. Uh, none of the teams are actually in first place, but it's two and a half weeks in, so it really doesn't matter. The only thing I really care about right now is injuries and make sure that half my team isn't on the DL, because this has happened to me before. So as long as the team is healthy and there are, there are no surprise injuries, then it's, it's okay. Uh, I had Gary Sanchez go down in one league, but he should be back in a couple of weeks, so it's not a killer like some of the injuries I dealt with last year. Well, before we get rolling and talking about moves and when to make those decisions, I'd like to ask you what you think have been the most important or maybe just the most interesting stories in fantasy baseball so far this year. Well, I think it's really more a story of real baseball, and of course, that affects fantasy baseball. And I actually went to the league stats and basically the trends. I, I went back to 2000, and I looked at where some of the metrics were trending. And last year, as we all know, home runs spiked. Home run per fly ball was at like an all-time high. So the question was how much of that is going to be sustained this year? Was that a fluke, or is this going to be the new level of offensive performance? So I found a whole lot of interesting trends this year, and it, it really is very interesting to, to follow how everything has been developing so far. So walk rate is up again this year. It's been the highest mark since 2010. Strikeout rate continues its upward climb, and, and that just keeps on going up every single year. <clears throat> Batting average... Right now, batting average for the whole league is 242. I went back to 2000, and I, I didn't feel like going back any further than that. But going back to 2000, this is the first time the batting average has been below 250. That's a huge, huge decline. So I don't know what's going on there. Uh, it's driven by a BABIP decline from, it was 300 last year. Right now we're at 286. The lowest it's been in a season since 2000 is 293. So, whoa, humongous decline. The home run per fly ball rate that we experienced last year, the big spike, it's mostly been sustained. It's dropped a little bit, 
but home runs are usually increasing in the summer, and obviously this is just the first two and a half weeks, so we might be right back to where we were at last year. Uh, highest fly ball rate since 2011. Uh, fastball velocity is probably up again after adjusting for the new method of measurement. And last is swinging strike rate for pitchers is the highest going all the way back to 2002, which is as far back as Fangraphs has data for. Whole lot to digest. Yeah, it is. And uh, it, it's all really interesting stuff because those are the kind of trends that people need to be aware of as they try to calibrate what's going on. Now, uh, you didn't mention stolen bases. I know it's, again, it's very early to say, and a lot of guys don't like running when it's early in the year because of the cold weather and can cause some leg problems. But did you notice anything about stolen bases so far? Yeah, I didn't calculate that just because I would have had to go stolen bases divided by games. And uh, I just didn't think of that. I was just looking at the metrics. I don't know. Do you have any idea where stolen bases are? Because I know they had been trending downward, and I, I don't really have a good idea of how they've been so far this year. I don't either, but I can tell you that uh, one of my goals in Tout American League in the draft was to uh, assemble a pretty good all-around team of stolen base guys, especially in my middle infield, and I'm last in the category by quite a wide margin because none of my guys are stealing, and I and I. Th- I've noticed that across the board, there seems to be guys that one would expect would have a good number of stolen bases who don't. In fact, I don't think I have a guy, anybody with more than one, and one of them is Edwin Encarnacion, not exactly a speed demon. Well, who is supposed to be your top steals guy? I have Tim Anderson, I have Jose Ramirez, uh, Ian Kinsler I always count on for, you know, 15 or so, uh, guys like that. And uh, so Kinsler just got his first the other day, and that's what I mean. It's kind of anecdotal evidence, and I sure would not want to hang my hat on it. But uh, at the same time, uh, I wonder maybe Cleveland doesn't seem to be running near as much as they did last year, which is kind of a surprise to me. I I don't know. I'm hoping it's the weather, and I'm hoping that maybe part of the problem is Tim Anderson doesn't seem to be able to get on base at all, which is going to slow down you can't steal first exactly right and uh, um, so uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see but uh, when you look at overperformers and underperformers as individual players Mike are you more likely to expect regression downwards from overperformers or regression upwards from underperformers it's a question I've actually never been asked before but it's a really good question just because it's interesting to ponder that and I would definitely say I'd lean toward the regression downward from overperformers versus the improvement from underperformance. And and that's because I think underperformance there are more possible explanations for it, such as injuries that a player is playing through, such as aging, such as maybe a young player uh is unable to make adjustments after the pitchers have exploited some weaknesses. But overperformers it's Unless you have some obvious explanation, like they made a swing adjustment, they added a leg kick, they you know they, they clearly made mechanical adjustments at the plate, it's really hard to believe that uh, a breakout currently in progress is going to continue. It's just a lot easier to think that like an underperformer is going to continue to not perform as well, especially if you have the metrics to back it up, like you know a, a sky high strikeout rate that he, we've never seen from him before, he's swinging and missing more often, or he's just older, or maybe he's playing through an injury. So that's where I, I'd lean towards the underperformers continuing to do so. 
Well, now that you say that, it's an interesting question as well from the point of view of pitchers versus hitters because uh, every year when spring training is underway, we do look at pitchers in spring training and uh, at training camp and try to get uh, the, the, the information of whether they're developing new pitches or trying to mix a particular pitch in more heavily than they have in the past and those kind of things because that really can change a pitcher's outcomes for the better, especially if he shows some mastery of a, of a new breaking pitch. For pitchers, I think... It's closer to an even balance because you're right. Pitchers change far more quickly than hitters do. I mean, I, I see on fan graphs all the time when I'm looking at individual pitch swinging strike rates, and then I compare that to the scouting report, and I see, wait a second, this pitch has like a, a 45 or a 50 grade, which is basically average, and yet it's inducing a high rate of whiffs, getting ground balls. That to me suggests the pitch is. Awesome, and yet the scouting grade is just mediocre. So what happened? It's because the pitcher changed. Maybe he gained velocity. Maybe he gained movement. Maybe he's throwing with a different uh, release point. Who knows? But there's so many adjustments that pitchers make that we don't hear about that change their performance levels, and I think it happens a lot more often than for hitters. I think so too because there's more things going on when a guy's delivering a pitch than when he's hitting. The the hitting stroke is a fairly uh, similar thing from hitter to hitter. They have minor variations. But when you think about how a pitcher throws a pitch, there's there's the grip, there's the arm angle, there's the wrist angle, there's the stride length, there's the, the stride velocity, there's how much they open their hips and all those kind of things. And if you change any one of them, you can get huge new effects. Uh, you know, the story, the one that just jumps out into my mind is when somebody shows Mariano Rivera how to throw a cut fastball and all of a sudden he goes from being a pitcher to a pitcher <laughs> the cutter king well you mentioned that young guys are a little more suspicious uh, as far as uh, overperformance. I'm looking at Mitch Haniger of the Mariners. There was a bit of buzz about him in uh, in the preseason as we headed into drafts, and some guys are probably patting themselves on the back for being genius enough to take a chance on Mitch Haniger. He's currently the number three hitter on Baseball HQ's valuations at $38 in 5 by 5 value. Uh, based on what you said, I'm going to presume you don't expect Mitch Haniger to remain at $38, but how much would you expect him to decline based on your understanding of the metrics and based on your experience playing the game? Well, I think most people would be surprised to hear that Mitch Haneker is actually already 26 years old. This is not some young, hotshot prospect who is heavily hyped and is now breaking out. This is an older guy who really wasn't that much of a prospect who enjoyed a breakout period of time at AAA last year. What's interesting is that at AA last year, he wasn't any good. He posted, well, actually, he was good overall. He just didn't show a whole lot of power. Everything else, metric-wise, was good at AA, but at AAA, he also experienced a power surge. Now, during his short time with the Diamondbacks last year, that didn't exactly translate. He only posted a 303 WOBA, so he wasn't any good. So the, he, he kind of fell off the radar. And then, of course, he was a sleeper this year, heading into the season. People were excited about his potential. And, and so, really, the question was, can he translate that AAA breakout into the majors? And, and you don't know. You don't know if that was just a fluke, because he's a lot older than the rest of his league mates, or if the, the light bulb turned on and he figured something out. So far, it looks like he's figured something out. And to be honest, I'm trying to find something to poke holes in, in this statistical profile, and it truly looks pristine. That doesn't mean that he's going to be able to sustain this, but it tells me that right now what he's done 
he's deserved it. He hasn't been lucky. He's actually legitimately been really, really good. Now, of course, we talked about hitters being able to adjust to pitchers who were trying to exploit their weaknesses. I don't know. This is his first time around the league. I don't know if maybe during the second half he's going to slump badly because pitchers are going to discover something. So that's an open question. Uh, I mean, at this point, you're not going to be able to sell high on Hanniger to begin with. So if you're an owner, you really have no choice but to just continue to hold on to him and fingers crossed that he continues hitting well. But if we do expect him to decline, I know the uh, projections that are showing on the on-roto site in our league uh, say that he's going to hit about 250 the rest of the way, maybe 18 more home runs, 60 or so RBIs and runs scored. Does that sound reasonable to you, or is that too much of a drop-off? Projections have a very difficult time when guys like Hanniger suddenly have breakouts in their last year in the minors, especially at their age. They can't handle that. So they generally assume it's a fluke, and they don't really account for that in their projections. Plus, a lot of the projection is based on his small sample time with the Diamondbacks in 2016. So to be honest, I would completely ignore the projections, and I would absolutely take the over the rest of the way on both his power and his batting average. Uh, so I'm definitely a lot more bullish on him than the projections are. But not as bullish as he's going to keep being a thirty-eight dollar no, player. No, of course I trust. not. But I, I, I do think he has the uh, ability to continue to perform well and give you. T- let's go with a pace of twenty-plus home runs, and I'll chip in uh, another, you know, five to ten steals while batting, let's say, two sixty, two seventy, two eighty or so. On the other end of the spectrum, Mike, we have guys like Jose Reyes and Jose Bautista, both seasoned veterans, uh, both have been $40 players in the past, both under $0 right now in Roto Value. Uh, I know Bautista has, I don't remember the last time he got a hit, Reyes has been terrible. How much rebound can we expect from either of of these two guys, considering how old they are and how much uh, injuries they have, especially in the recent past? Yeah, so this is the other side of the coin, the old guys, you never know when that year is that they just collapse as age just takes hold. I remember, of course, we can be wrong. Do you remember years and years ago, David Ortiz started off super slowly. It was like the first month or two, and everybody was saying, oh, his bat has slowed. David Ortiz is done. Then after that, he heated up. He got back to normal. And then he continued to be a monster every year after that. I do remember that, as a matter of fact, and it just goes to show you that it's very hard to predict. But uh, Jose Bautista actually didn't look that good last year either, and uh, I think a lot of people were looking at him as last year's bum, and maybe this year he's he's going to enjoy a nice big rebound that we can cash in on. But I think that method of trying to figure out which guys you want to pay for is a little bit suspect. He went from you know the $30 range as late as 2015 all the way down to $9 last year, and I think a lot of people went into the draft thinking... This was the year he'll bounce back to the 20s. And in fact, I think in a lot of leagues that I saw, the, the experts' leagues, a $20 bid wasn't out of the norm for Jose Bautista, 17 to 20. And at right now, he's at like minus a buck or something like that. He's got a long way to go to even get into double digits. Yeah. So I brought up Ortiz just to give us an example of how difficult it is to really validate that an older hitter is done. However, I do kind of believe that Jose Batista is nearing the end. I was rather bearish heading into the season. All of his power metrics 
like the advanced metrics that I look at were in a, a major downtrend and did not suggest that a rebound was imminent. And right now, his hard percentage has collapsed. It's, it's literally half of what it was last year, easily at a career low. His strikeout rate has jumped 10 points, far above anything he's ever done before. He's swinging and missing more than ever before. Literally every metric that you look at is what you'd expect from an aging guy who's just about at the end of his career. And, and with his age, his injury issues, he's not somebody that I would buy low on at all. I'm curious, uh, I know you're not a medical doctor or anything, but I know you've thought about this a lot. When, a, when an, old, an older player, especially a hitter, uh, starts to have that decline, is the problem that he doesn't see the pitches as well, or is the problem that he can't pull the trigger, he can't react as quickly? Well, they always talk about a slow bat. It's that he just can't catch up with the heat anymore, and I think it's, it's slower reactions. I don't believe that the batter's eye has changed and that he can't recognize pitches as well. It's that he can't react and, and do what he used to be able to do as quickly just because he's older and he's just less, less flexible. That's what I'm guessing. I don't know. I could be wrong. <laughs> and the reason is because you're not old enough. I'm old enough to remember when I turned 40 or towards my 40s, I started needing reading glasses. I had trouble catching a football as well as I could have when I was younger because as it got near my near me, uh, I had trouble focusing on it to the extent where you can see the pebble on the ball and make a grab for it in uh, with great precision. And, and I wonder if, considering how difficult it is to pick up the spin on the baseball, to calculate its path, to all, do all of these things with your eyesight, and then to focus in on it when you're, when you're swinging through it at that last minute when it's as close as it's ever going to be to you, maybe you just don't see it as well because your eyesight is just not as good as it was. Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably a factor. Uh, I mean, I'm probably going to end up seeing that in a couple of years. Well, to, to be honest, More than I mean, a when I was younger, I had uh, amazing vision. And then, uh, then in my late 20s, I had to get glasses, and then I switched to contacts quickly. And so, and so yeah, so I've been wearing contacts for a while now. And so, obviously, most people's eyesight does you know, slowly deteriorate as, as we age, others more so than uh, everybody at, you know, at different paces. But yeah, that's certainly a possible explanation here. And finally, Mike, what about younger guys? Byron Buxton's really struggling. Tim Anderson, I mentioned on my team, is really struggling. I think his on-base percentage may be under 200 at this point or slightly over. These guys are really struggling as well, and they have good pedigrees. Uh, Anderson, in particular, played very well last year, or, or well enough to certainly qualify as somebody we should have been able to count on this year. And yet both of these young players are really struggling. And I wonder what's your prognosis for a guy who's in his early 20s. He's in the big leagues. Buxton has bounced around a little more, as we know. But what is their prognosis for recovering this year? Well, I feel like it might be wrong and mean for me to do, but I have to just laugh at what has happened to Byron Buxton this year and all of the owners who bought into what he did last September, despite the fact that he did that, striking out 35% of the time. I mean, this is exactly what I predicted. I was notoriously bearish hitting into the season on Buxton, and yet... Everybody was just mesmerized by that huge September and ignoring the high BABIP and, and all the other red flags. And, and this is what happens. He's actually swinging and missing 20.4% of the time. That's his swinging strike rate. He's leading the league 
if, if you can say leading the league, leading the league in a negative sense in strikeout rate of 46%. And it's not even like he's making that up by walking. He's only walking 4% of the time. He's walked twice versus 23 walks. So he's doing absolutely nothing to help the team. And his whole batted ball profile is like the most hilarious I've ever seen. He's hit a total of one line drive, one line drive the entire year at 4.5%. Now, for listeners, the line drive rate for the league is generally 20 to 21%. Buxton's down at 4.5%. He's hitting fly balls 59% of the time. Fly balls go for hits far less often than ground balls, so that's one of the reasons why his batting average is so low, because he's probably just hitting dinky fly balls right to the outfield just to be caught. And... He's popping up at an extraordinary rate. He already has four pop-ups on the year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but given so few batted balls, that's an extraordinarily high number. If I was able to get a leaderboard up, I bet that would rate at or very close to the top of all of baseball. So he's doing literally zero right right now, but he plays excellent defense. The Twins don't have any other obvious alternatives. So he might still have uh, a while longer before the uh, Twins lose patience and a while longer to drag down your batting average. And what about Tim Anderson, who uh, was even better? He was actually quite a useful player last year. I had him on my roster. I signed him as a free agent out of the pool when he came up, and uh, he, he was okay last year. And this year, it's just like he forgot how to play. Yeah, I would say forgot how to play. I mean, he's Buxton-like in that he just refuses to walk, which is odd because he's at the top of the lineup. He's only walked once all season long. And I read a quote. I I can't remember if it was a comment on Fangraphs or if it was a Fangraphs article, but it was a quote from Tim Anderson about walking. And the, the summary version is that Tim Anderson has absolutely no interest in walking. So I, I think the issue here is that he does not understand what contributes to offensive value. And, and that's a problem, because if he doesn't understand that walking actually helps the team and is a positive baseball event, then, then that's a real issue. And he also doesn't really understand what kind of a hitter he is, because he's hitting fly balls at a nearly 48% clip. This is a guy with limited power who has a lot of speed, meaning he should be hitting a lot of ground balls, 48% ground balls, not 48% fly balls. So... Like Buxton, he's not doing a whole lot right. And if uh, Yom Mankata was actually not striking out a ton as well, and if he looked ready, I would think that Anderson's job would be in jeopardy very soon. Yeah, last year I remember seeing him hitting over 50% ground balls, and I thought, this is exactly what this guy has to do. He can really run, and he can add value to the team by slapping the ball on the ground and getting on. I mean, last year he hit almost to 285, I think, something like that, and he did it by whacking the ball on the ground and then beating out leg hits, and enough of them to, to raise him from a 250 hitter to a 280 hitter. And now this year, as you say, it's exactly the opposite. He's 35% ground balls, 50% fly balls, and, and that usual 20% line drive rate. He's doing everything wrong, and and what I wonder is why isn't the team saying something and, and telling this guy, look, you got to start getting on base, or you're going to be riding the buses down in Altoona. Just for me, in reading the quote about the walking, it would seem like, and I don't want to, spe- I hate to speculate, but it would seem like he's not the most coachable of players. So maybe he's just not receptive to advice and improving his game. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing here, but based on the. Uh, unwillingness to take a walk, then maybe he just does it his way, and and if it gets him sent back to the minors, well, so be it. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Rotographs columnist Mike Podhorzer. And Mike, I noticed you were in on the tout American League fab bidding on Chris Coughlin, and you were going to make roster space by reserving Chicago White Sox infielder Carlos Sanchez, perhaps better known as Yolmer Sanchez, who by any other name does not smell very sweet this season. Obviously, you were expecting an offensive upgrade, but there's more to it than deciding to add someone to your roster. How did you decide it was time to get Sanchez off your roster? Well, for yet another year, I screwed up in the Towers auction. So the backstory is I, I won, I rostered Matt Duffy, who we knew was going to start the year on the DL, and he was my middle infielder. So I knew, okay, in the reserve round, let me grab a middle infielder to play for the first couple of weeks until Duffy returns. Well, on my projection spreadsheet, I have uh, position eligibility, and for whatever reason, I forgot to change Andrew Romine's position eligibility. Coming into 2016, he qualified in the middle infield. However, he did not play enough games there in 2016 to qualify there in 2017. So I drafted him in the reserve round thinking he would be my Duffy replacement, and yet he doesn't qualify at middle infield. So that sucked, and that means that I had a scramble for a middle infield option, and who landed on the top of the heap for me? Carlos Sanchez. So I basically had to settle on him between like three other options who are no more appealing, and basically every week I've been hoping to get a slight upgrade because really who wants to be starting Carlos Sanchez on their team? So I was legit upset. I, I really did want Chris Coughlin, and uh, I was a little surprised by the uh, aggressive bids on him. But in general, how do you decide that uh, it's time to make that move because so many experts say sit pretty, ex- exercise excruciating patience is what Ron Chandler always says, sit tight until mid-May, maybe even Memorial Day, trying to decide what your team really is or what it really needs, and yet we, s- we see lots of guys making roster moves much earlier than that, including in this case, you. Yeah, well, I, I disagree mostly with that, because I think what that's meant by is don't give up on your players too early. Basically, if your guy is off to a slow start, don't sell low on him. Don't overreact to hot starts. I think that's what it's trying to say. I don't think Ron means don't make any moves. If a great trade opportunity is presented in front of you, you're not going to decline it because you want to just stand pat. So I think that's what it is. It's not to panic and overreact to early season performance. However, you should always be looking to improve your team. I mean, if I got offered, I don't know, Clayton Kershaw for Tyler Skaggs, I'm going to, you know, accept the trade. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm selling low on Tyler Scott because his ERA is 519. I'm going to accept the trade because obviously that's an upgrade. So I think it's, it's the way we are interpreting what that mantra means. And, and people should always be looking to make trades or upgrade their roster. I just always assume that this early on nobody is selling low. And so I don't even bother trying to send out offers. But that's not true. You have to really know your league mates and, and who's willing to give up on players and panic this early in the season. I think that's a great piece of advice, Mike. There are players in every league who are 
either panicky or they just can't resist making moves because they think that's the main fun of the league. And uh, those are the kind of guys you have to know the table, just like when you're playing poker. You know, you have to know how these other guys bet, how they respond to bets, all of these kind of psychological things that can help you decide whether to make a pitch on a trade deal or or try to guess how much they might uh, bid on a fab guy. I think that's really super important. Now, another dictum that I've heard over the years playing fantasy baseball now for 25 years or so, there's a lot of people who believe that come Memorial Day, maybe a little bit before, if you're not in the top five, you have a very tough road to hoe to get in, into a pennant race. I've never been outside the top five, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I've never seen any studies on that. I've never done the math. Um, I, I would say, though, that Memorial Day is basically a good time to really actually start looking at the standings. I do pretty much think that the standings are mostly meaningless for the first two months of the year. However, I don't want to be in last place because you probably aren't going to have a killer four months to make up that ground uh, uh, on Memorial Day. But I don't know. Fifth place seems arbitrary. I, I feel like maybe... Uh, a percentage of the first-place points or a percentage of the overall points would be a better way to look at it. Because if first place, let's say, out of 120, say first place has uh, 95, and then second through sixth are all jumbled between, like, 60 to 75, then maybe it's going to be easier than if you're in sixth place, but you're all the way down at 50. And, and maybe the top two teams are running away with it. So it really depends on the distribution of points at that time uh, to, to put a hard and fast rule on that. I think that's exactly right. And I also think, especially in leagues that use rotisserie-style scoring, category-based scoring, you have to also take a look at where you are in the categories and, and assess realistically how much chance is there that you could pick up six points in stolen bases? How much chance is there that you could quickly pick up four points in ERA and whip a piece? You know, you can make, especially early on when the uh, when the rate stat denominators aren't really well established yet, you can make some pretty significant moves even in one week, never mind in uh, in four months. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point to make. And I was talking with a friend of mine in a league I used to play in, and he was bemoaning his fate. He said, I'm in 10th place. It's so early, and I'm already way down in 10th place. And I was trying to help him out, and I said, how many points are you out of the lead? And he said, well, I'm 11 points out of second. Oh, my God. This is exactly the yeah. example. Isn't it, though? I mean, you know, if you're 11 points out, you're basically you're in the race. I, I can only guess that first place must have like a 30-point lead. I didn't ask, but you know what it also could be is it's a competitive league full of pretty good players, and maybe they're all just jockeying for position. All Nobody's got a real dominant position in all the categories. They're split up pretty evenly, uh, which would be a great league to be in for a year because there would be so many opportunities to trade tactically and make moves tactically down the stretch. Uh, how do you feel about using stat projections to assess chances uh, once you're at that sort of May 30th, uh, June 1st sort of level? Do you ever use your own projections or others to look at your look at the projected stats and say I think I have a chance or I think I don't yeah I definitely do and it's really really important to get an idea of where you may end up and how many points you can realistically gain or lose when you're contemplating a trade contemplating a pickup or a switch I mean if you want to give up power for speed yeah, you're going to gain in steals, but how much are you going to lose in RBIs and home runs? And rest-of-season projections are definitely going to help. However, I think it's going to, 
would be a little bit overboard because you kind of have to project players for every team, and and that would just be too time consuming and just too crazy. And I don't think anybody has that much time to project every team's rest of season. So I think it's enough to just kind of look at your players and and get an idea. Are you going to be better in the steals category because you're Tim Anderson's hopefully get on base more, or are you going to be worse off? And the same in the power categories. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Rotographs columnist Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs.com. And Mike, speaking of making early moves, you had an interesting column in your Rotographs segment on Wednesday of this week looking at players likely to be on the free agent list in a lot of leagues and worth looking at. And some of these names I find interesting because they're not the kind of names that we generally hear in these kind of columns. For instance, you like Adam Frazier, a Pittsburgh outfielder. What is it about Adam Frazier, who's not a household name? Well, the playing time opportunity, surprisingly, is a little more safe now that Starling Marte was suspended for 80 games for performance-enhancing drugs. And Frazier is a guy that's going to benefit greatly because he probably has a full-time job now. And he's a guy that you probably don't want to touch in a, a, a shallow mixed league, but in a deep league or uh, an NL-only league, you definitely want to consider he makes good contact. He has a very good batted ball profile, which should prop up the, the batting average on balls in play. He hits at the top of the lineup, which should lead to some pretty good runs, scored numbers. And he's got a, a touch of speed. So he can contribute in a couple of categories. He has very little power, though, which makes him kind of unownable in a shallow mixed league. But he's a perfect example of a guy to plug in if you have an injury he's not going to hurt you he's not going to bring down your batting average or your on-base percentage if you're playing in the obp league and he qualifies at a couple of positions so he's a guy to definitely consider if he's available well we already talked about chris coglin who is the other guy in your column but i noticed in your analysis of both these players you relied on weighted oba woba you mentioned a woba statistic a little earlier when we were talking i know woba is a really popular stat among daily fantasy players but uh why do you apply it in a season-long format in this case so woba i was using because these are deep league recommendations and i think the biggest question with these deep league players is, are they actually going to get the playing time? We know that the stars are all going to play every day, but the Adam Frazier's, the Chris Coglins, are they even going to play? It's great that I like his skills, but are they going to play enough to showcase their skills? And so Woba is basically the best offensive metric. And so if I think that they can post a good Woba, that's going to actually keep them in the lineup and allow them to continue to get plate appearances. Your most recent column at Fangraphs looks at American League starting pitchers who've improved their contact rates on pitches in the strike zone. That is, they're getting more swing and miss even when they're in the strike zone. And so first, why is this zone contact metric really significant for you? Well, zone contact rates are almost always higher than out-of-zone contact rates. So if you can make a batter miss when you're throwing a pitch right in the strike zone, then that's probably the best example of the quality of your stuff than anything else. I mean, anybody can throw a slider off the plate and make a batter swing and miss, but if you're throwing a fastball right down the middle and the batter still can't make contact, that's a pretty darn good fastball. So I think that's really important to look at who has improved year over year to see maybe their stuff has improved or maybe their location has improved or maybe their 
pitching with increased velocity. There's some explanation there potentially that could allow us to identify some early breakout guys. Well, we'll talk about some particular examples in just a second, but you did mention at the outset of the article that it's pretty early to be making observations about stats, especially rate stats, but you also say that you're confident this particular metric, zone contact, does indeed stabilize fairly quickly, enough that it's valid even at this early point. Why? Stabilizes quickly, I believe, just because of the denominator is pitches, and there are far more pitches than batters face than innings, and so just the denominator grows at a much quicker pace than some of the other metrics, and so that's one of the reasons, um, uh, especially compared to let's say strikeout rate. So I'd rather look at in zone contact rate or let's say swinging strike rate rather than strikeout rate this early just because of the the denominator. And I actually developed an expected strikeout rate metric for pitchers many years ago. And what I love about it is that the denominator is per pitch. And so early on in the season, I think it's a much better metric to use in terms of predictability going forward than actual strikeout rate just for that denominator reason. At the very top of your list was a name that's going to make a lot of owners raise their eyebrows or perhaps scoff out loud, Jason Vargas. And you asked yourself in the column, how is it possible that Jason Vargas at age 35 has become, and I use your words, a strikeout machine? So I'll bite. How's he doing it? It all comes down to his changeup. He, he's always had a good changeup, and, and that's been his best pitch, and, and because his fastball has never been good, that's been what's allowed him to stay in the major leagues. And He's been a fairly solid pitcher throughout his major league career, and the changeup has sported an 18.5% swinging strike rate, and, and that's really good. That's well above the league average. I believe the league average for changeups is in the mid-teens, like maybe 14 or 15%. This year, that changeup is generating a swinging strike rate of about 31%. That's like absolutely elite, elite. So I don't know if he's doing something differently with the changeup, if he, it, if he brought on some more deception, or if it's got more movement. I don't know, but it looks highly unsustainable considering the rest of his pitches haven't changed. He hasn't gained velocity. His pitch mix isn't the same, uh, is the same. So it's all about the changeup, and it's do you believe that his changeup is going to continue inducing whiffs at the rate it has? And I can't imagine that anybody would agree that it will. So obviously we're going to see regression. How much? I don't know. But obviously if you're in an AL only league, you'll, you know, you'll keep on starting him. I don't know how much longer he'll have mixed league value, though. Well, that makes me think of this whole idea of volatility again. Uh, earlier on, we agreed kind of that a pitcher can, for instance, develop a new grip or some kind of new delivery that makes a certain pitch more effective. Isn't it possible that Jason Vargas has done that with this particular pitch? And because he's a seasoned veteran, has the smarts or the canny, canniness to, to know when to throw it and where to throw it? I would say yes, if his career swinging strike on the pitch was, let's say, 12%, and now he's at 18%. But when you go from 18 to 31, 31 is like, is league leading. I, I don't have leaderboards for swinging strike by pitch type, but I know just from history that 31 is basically the top or, or beyond, especially for a starting pitcher who throws 200 innings. It's just simply not sustainable. So it's not something you, you can possibly believe is, is continued for any pitcher. So 
at the very least, I would expect it to drop down to the, let's say, low to mid-20s, and that's still elite. So I, I just can't believe that Jason Vargas now throws like one of the best change-ups, change-ups in history. <laughs> I can't either. And, uh, and would you sell high on Jason Vargas right now? If somebody came to you with an offer, they needed a, a starting pitcher, and they were interested enough because of Vargas's seeming improvement, are you confident enough that there's some kind of decline coming that you would be willing to entertain an offer? Well, well, sure, I'd be willing to entertain an offer. It all depends on what the offer is. But you do also have to remember that Vargas pitches for the Royals, who sports uh, a really good defense, and it's a great home park. Um, so all the other variables are in Vargas's favor to continue being an asset in fantasy leagues. But, of course, that doesn't mean that he's not going to rega- uh, regress significantly. Well, and, of course, when I hear that, the the one sort of factor that isn't in his favor is his own history. He has never, he's been an okay pitcher at best. I I think the most I've ever seen him earn was around $10 in a season. He's up over 20 right now, and he's got a lot of minus dollar seasons on his track record, at least according to Baseball HQ's valuations. I'm just very suspicious in general when a 35-year-old guy all of a sudden goes from being a sort of a replacement level pitcher to being an elite level pitcher because of one pitch, as you said. Yeah, it's mind-boggling, and and of course in the comments everybody's trying to uh, come up with explanations to justify what he's done so far. So I, I guess we'll just have to see what happens and and see does he continue uh, making hitters miss with that changeup, or does he just drop back to normal? I should also note that uh, after a string of years from '09 to '16 with ERAs in the fours, this year 228. And again, I'm just very suspicious of that. And I did notice that some of the comments, uh, Fangraphs invites comments from readers at the bottom of all you guys' columns. And the one guy had something to, something to say to the effect of, I've watched him pitch and he seems more confident out there. And that seems like the kind of thing that, that's the kind of guy you want in your league because that's, that's the guy you want to be trading Jason Vargas to. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, well, the confidence is going to come somewhere. It's going to show up in the stats somewhere. So, I, I, although I, I, I don't know. I mean, is it more movement? Is it is it higher velocity? I don't know. Confidence alone isn't going to make hitters swing and miss. Another eyebrow-raising name on your list was James Shields, who was terrible last year, but he's off to a pretty good start this year with a 162 ERA and a 114 whip and 16 strikeouts in 17 innings. So what did you discover about big blame James? I discovered that he's the most baffling pitcher of the entire season. It's not Jason Vargas, it's James Shields. Let me run through the metrics, shall I? So we were talking about in-zone contact rate. Well, James Shields actually has a career-low Z-contact percentage, which is in-zone contact percentage. That's a positive, but that's literally the only positive. His first strike percentage is at a career-worst which has really boosted his walk rate. And James Shield used to be known for excellent control, and here we are, he's sitting with a 14.5% walk rate after a 10% walk rate last year. So what is going on with James Shield's control? I don't know. And then his fly ball rate, oh my God, what is going on? He's basically been the Byron Buxton of pitchers. His fly ball rate is 58%, which is insane, and he's always had home run problems to begin with so imagine even more fly balls coming off of the bat against James Shields and in a park that inflates home runs it's basically a recipe for disaster 
And the other confounding thing that I found about Shields is that his best pitch is a changeup, and it always has been. And since his fastball has never been very good, it's that changeup that has allowed him to be very successful in the past. Well, he's only throwing at 10% of the time this year, which is half the frequency of last year. I have no idea how to explain that and why he would do that. So that's another reason for my pessimism. I think another reason is that for the last few years, his uh, batting average on balls in play is around 300 or 310. We call it hit rate at BaseballHQ.com, around 30%. This year, 16. And so uh, I think maybe he's been pitching with a little luck, also a 100% strand rate as, as well. And and as you mentioned, the, the last thing I would point out to anybody thinking of making a, making a play on James Shields is uh, in 2014, he had a 1.7 walks per nine rate. Then the year after that, it doubled, more than doubled to 3.6, then 4.1. This year, it's all the way up to 5.4. Everything seems to be pointing in the wrong direction for James Shields. Yeah, I I honestly, I I don't know what happened here because he used to be consistently undervalued, and and now his skills have just taken a dive. and, And he's not, I mean, he's 35, yes, so age is probably taking a toll, but this is not usually the way you expect age to take its toll. So I don't know what's going on here. All I know is that I wouldn't touch James Shields in any league unless it was a White Sox-only league. That's it. Or one of those leagues where everybody's trying to do really badly. Yeah, I wonder if they still have those. I remember it was called Hacking Mass. It was years and years ago where you got points for, for negative events, and James Shields would be a champion in that. Yeah, I, I played in one once. They called it a Bizarro League, where, of course, based on that old Superman cartoon where they had those white-faced guys who everything was backwards for them. You did have a couple of young pitchers on your list, Mike, that everyone was pretty high on uh, coming into the season. One of those, Tyler Skaggs. Uh, is Tyler Skaggs for real, unlike James Shields? Yeah, well, you wouldn't know it by his ERA, which is, is not good right now, but his skills have looked really good. He had Tommy John surgery a couple of years ago. He came back. His velocity was up. Uh, The velocity is down a bit from where it was last year. However, he's getting whiffs at a double-digit rate on his fastball and his curveball and his changeup. So all of his pitches are working. He's in a good ballpark and uh, a good defense behind him, including Angelton Simmons. So anytime you have Simmons behind you, that's a good thing. So I think he's a really good target if if you're looking to buy low and need a pitcher in a deep league he's a guy to go after and in seattle james paxton was a early preseason favorite he looks like he's doing real well and he's got the era to show for it at zero 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 yeah i like pitchers with zero eras so that's that's a good thing uh i however i i wouldn't expect him to maintain that zero earned run total (laughs) no we're gonna have to expect some regression here uh, but that said, I do love James Paxton, and the unfortunate thing is that everybody else seemed to love James Paxton, so I ended up with him in zero leagues this year. Uh, but he's doing exactly what I think everybody hoped for. His pitches have been fantastic from uh, a whiff perspective. The curveball, the cutter, excellent. The fastball is also generating swings and misses more than ever before. Uh, The only thing that I'm questioning is that he used to be a ground ball pitcher, and suddenly he's now allowing fly balls more than ground balls, which is a a big change. But what that has come with is a lot more pop-ups. So that's a positive. But that's really the only nitpick here. Uh, Other than that, uh, ride him out. I mean, he's had injury issues in the past, so you can't really 
be confident he's going to pitch a full season healthy, but while he's on the mound, he's going to be a good one. I just have two quick comments about the uh, the fly ball rate that James Paxton has moved towards, and I wonder if first he likes getting fly balls in that park because it's a good park for fly balls, and and they changed their outfield construction so that they had a lot of good guys to run down fly balls out there. And the second thing is, Mike, I've always said that we should not have a fly ball percentage metric. It should be outfield fly balls versus infield fly balls because they're a completely different animal. Years ago, I created an X. BABIP uh, equation for hitters, and in that equation, I broke out fly balls, uh, or I broke out the infield fly balls from fly balls to create the outfield version and the infield version of fly balls and have the, the, the separate rates. And yeah, I can't understand why the fly ball rate includes both because they're very different animals and they lead to very different results. So we really should have those separated. I know in, in some uh, metric sets, in fact, a lot of them, the, the infield flies are presented as a percentage of all flies, and they should be a percentage of all struck balls, just like all the other uh, trajectories. They are a different animal. Absolutely, and plus it would give you a better idea of who's good at inducing pop-ups, because if you've got a high fly ball percentage guy and he's good at pop-ups, that means that he's even better than he looks based on just the pop-up rate. Because if the pop-up rate is high, and that's coming out of fly ball rate, which is also high, then that's higher than somebody that has a lower fly ball rate. And you, and you wouldn't know that if you just looked at pop-up rate. Well, I've always considered that a pop-up is basically the equivalent of a strikeout. I've said that before here at Baseball HQ Radio and Master Notes and elsewhere. And I'll just give you a quick challenge question. What pitcher do you think has a very pedestrian strikeout rate, but if you add his infield flies to his strikeout rate, all of a sudden he's top 10? Marco Estrada comes to mind. It used to be Jared Weaver. You had Chris Young, the pitcher who's not really relevant anymore. Marco Estrada is correct. And in fact, a guy like Marco Estrada who has this particular repeatable skill, and our mutual friend Gene McCaffrey has always said, some of these pitchers have the skill of generating these pop-ups. And he too mentioned Jared Weaver over the years. And now I think uh, Marco Estrada is probably the poster child for it. And uh, you should know who gets a lot of pop-ups. Also, you should know which hitters don't hit a lot of pop-ups, led by Joey Votto, of course. Uh, finally, some possible good news for despondent owners of reigning Cy Young winner Rick Porcello, uh, like me. Uh, Porcello has not looked sharp this year. I think we can agree, at least as far as his results. But your review suggests he's actually been quite a bit better than those results. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, he's basically been the same pitcher as last year, if not better. He's getting hurt by all of the luck metrics, a uh, high batting average on balls and play, uh, lots of home runs, and, and both of those are killing his strand rate, which right now sits at what would be a career low. However, his fastball, which has induced swinging strikes at a, a double-digit clip since 2015, is actually now at a career-high rate, while his slider has been fantastic, and that's been inducing strikes uh, swinging strikes at a career high rate as well. So both the fastball and the slider have been absolutely fantastic. He's still making hitters swing and miss. He's still displaying that fantastic control. So the only difference here is that BABIP that's high and that home run per fly ball rate that's high, which is pushing down his left on base percentage. I think he actually makes for a good buy low because everybody coming off of a Cy Young year figured regression, and nobody wanted to be that guy who bought in after the Cy Young. So I think 
his owners might possibly be panicking right now, although after his good start yesterday, maybe less so. Maybe the window has already closed. Well, I should just point out that uh, I've been talking on Baseball HQ Radio and writing at BaseballHQ.com about separating out these metrics by hard hit, soft hit, and medium hit, as well as trajectories, and calculating the uh, BABIPs or hit rates on on them in that way to determine who's being lucky and who's being unlucky, both for hitters and for pitchers. And I will just say this about Rick Porcello. He's generating a ton of soft and medium hit ground balls and and fly balls, which usually have hit rates around 15%. But for him right now, 30%. He's double the league average uh, as far as how many of these bleeders and dinkers and dunkers are falling in. And I think that's going to change. Eventually, Boston's a pretty sound defensive team. I uh, I like Rick Porcello. Yeah, I mean, and this is exactly what happens when you're dealing with only 23 innings pitched and why I essentially completely ignore ERA over the first month of the season and even mostly through the second month of the season as well. ERA is just not a very reliable rate at this point because there's just too much luck involved and you really need to just focus on the underlying uh, skill stats. What do you think about WHIP? I think WHIP has too much noise as well because that... Uh, is, is affected by BABIP. Right now, Rick Porcello's whip is 152. We know he's much better than that, and it's so high because of the 342 batting average on balls in play. So I pretty much ignore bat, uh, whip as well. Does it bother you at all, or does it concern you at all, that in 2012, Rick Porcello had 31 starts, 153 whip? It doesn't, because Rick Porcello is clearly a significantly better pitcher this year, uh, pre-2013, so looking at 2012, his strikeout percentage is only 13.7%. Right now, it's been over 20% the last three years. So this is a completely new and much better Porcello. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs. And Mike, during the season, I like to ask our experts about their studs and duds, and you can define it any way you like, but typically we don't need to know Mike Trout is a stud or Clayton Kershaw. And, uh, you know, we don't need to know that Tyler Duffy's a dud. So uh, with that in mind, let's start with our studs in the American League. Who's a hitter you think you like better than most? So I actually did this differently than I did last year. Typically, when I would choose a stud. I'd go for the buy-low guys, the guys who are performing poorly that I expect to perform better, and then the duds are the guys that are basically the sell highs, the guys that are performing well that I think will, will decline. Instead, I'm going for the buy highs and the sell lows. Well, that sounds like a good way of going about it. Who's your American League hitter, buy high? So my AL stud hitter, buy high, is Aaron Judge. And uh, it's funny because in spring training, we basically didn't know until the last second that he was gonna that he won the starting right field job over Aaron Hicks, um, and then he yeah, he actually got the job as expected, as hoped for. And, and the problem was potentially strikeouts. Well, he's much improved his swinging strike rate. His strikeout rate, while still not great at 28%, it's much closer to an acceptable level given his power. And he's sitting fourth right now in hard percentage among all qualified batters. Plus, speaking of batted ball profiles and pop-ups, he's hit no pop-ups all season long. I like this idea of using buy highs because uh, buy highs is something that I think people underestimate as a tactic in uh, fantasy baseball. So let's get a buy high hitter from the National League from you. Yeah, and also it's just a reminder that these guys you might be tempted to sell high, don't, I would hold them. So NL, probably the studliest hitter in the NL is Eric Thames, and, and I think he's a buy high or, or a hold if you own 
So right now, we know that when he was in the majors many years ago before Korea, he was not very good. Then he went to Korea. He turned into a monster. And obviously the question was, was he much improved from Korea? How much is that going to translate over to the majors? Well, basically everything you could have possibly hoped for. He has much improved his walk and his strikeout rates versus his previous Major League Baseball time. He's swinging far less at pitches outside the strike zone, and he's seventh right now in hard percentage. So literally everything that you could have hoped for, he's doing, except he's probably even better than the most optimistic projections. Everything right now supports his performance. I mean, he's not going to keep up that home run per fly ball rate. I believe it's 50%, but he's for real. And he plays in a great hitter's park. You know, something about Eric Thames I think is really interesting as well is a lot of people looked at the fact that he was playing in Korea for these last few years and they said, yeah, but look at all the Korean hitters who come over here. It's relatively rare for any of them to be a good power hitter. You get your Shinsu Chus and guys like that that are pretty good average hitters and good all-around players, but power hitters, they don't usually come over here and succeed. But Eric Thames didn't come over here. He went from here to there and back. And I know from uh, reading about the Korean League and the Japanese League to some extent that their whole baseball culture is about taking walks, moving runners along. It's a much more team-oriented game, and I wonder if some of that just rubbed off on him and, and some coach said to him, Eric, you're not helping the team by swinging the pitches that are a foot outside the strike zone. Calm down and maybe get some zen going on or something. Maybe Tim Anderson should go to Korea and learn some, yeah. some of that. Yeah. In the American League, how about a pitcher that you would uh, recommend not selling uh, if you have him and buying high if you don't? Uh, sticking with the Yankees and Luis Severino. So last year, big sleeper, huge disappointment. But this year, his slider is back. It's returned. That was his big pitch that was missing last year. It's generating a swinging strike rate of nearly 20%. And he's generating grounders at a 50% rate. And he has the second highest fastball velocity in baseball. He was a top prospect. And, and his stuff has been absolutely superb this year. His ERA is still over four. So an owner who's just looking at ERA, you might be able to pry him away. How about in the National League? Jeff Samarja at one time was one of the really top pitchers in the National League. And then he had that, dis that disastrous season in Chicago. And, and then last year he, he basically rebounded, but he's, uh, he's really changed his pitch mix this year. He's ditched his cutter, and his splitter usage has rebounded to pre-2016 levels. And that's always been his best pitch. And, and last year, for whatever reason, he, he kind of stopped throwing it. So now it's back to where it had been previously. His swinging strike rate is back to elite levels. And uh, his slider has also been driving that, as that pitch has been excellent. He's pitching in a really good home park in San Francisco, excellent defensive support. And yet he's sitting here with an ERA over six. But that's being really hampered by a 31% home run per fly ball rate and a 347 Babbitt. So basically the same problems as Rick Porcello. I expect those to significantly improve, and his ERA is going to drop in a hurry. Mike Podhorzer studs in the American League, Aaron Judge in the National League, Eric Thames on the hitting side, and on the mound, Luis Severino from the Yankees and Jeff Samarja from the San Francisco Giants. Now let's move over to the duds. Mike, uh, in the American League, who's a hitter you think could be a good sell-low candidate not coming back? It's funny because 
I came up with Carlos Beltran today, and then I was looking at his stats just before. I'm like, oh, of course, he homered today. So he actually hit his first home run. The thing is, the guy's 39 years old. He came into the game with, ready for this, the fourth lowest hard percentage in all of baseball, behind the likes of Jose Peraza, Jared Dyson, and Billy Hamilton. Can you believe that list? You have Jose Peraza, Jared Dyson, Billy Hamilton, and then Carlos Beltran. Talk about who doesn't belong in that list. Again, this guy's 39. We talked about aging at the beginning of the show. This is a perfect example of somebody that all the metrics are pointing to. Yeah, he's done. He's got two walks all season long, a 3.3% rate, 14 strikeouts, 23.3% rate. That's easily a career high and a career low walk rate. Plus his pop-up rate has been crazy high. Again, just like Jose Bautista, everything is basically supporting that this guy is on his last legs. Over in the National League, who's a player like Carlos Beltran, if there is such a thing? Oh, God, I I hate to say this guy's name because I was a fan. He was a very trendy sleeper, but Keon Broxton, man, he's striking out nearly 46% of the time, and simply because Byron Buxton has been even worse, he's not actually leading the league in strikeout rate. What is it with people who are have a, a B, an X, a T, an O, and an N in their last name that they're just not able to make contact. Broxton and Buxton, they're the strikeout kings this year. They certainly are, and Keon Broxton has been a real disappointment. I know a lot of people had a lot of high hopes for him on the batting average front and, uh, and uh, especially on the base pads. And as you said, can't steal first. Uh, going on to the pitcher's mound, going to the American League, who's a sell-low candidate for you? baffled by Kevin Gossman. Uh, I think a lot of guys liked him heading into the year. I liked him. I, I, I didn't roster him in any leagues, but I was a fan. And the problem, I think, stems from the fact that, for whatever reason, he's throwing his best pitch, the splitter, a lot less frequently than he did last year. He's actually halved the usage of that pitch and doubled the usage of uh, a slider, which is just not very effective. I don't know why that is, but his swinging strike rate is way down, which has driven a strikeout rate that's plummeted, and it's probably fueled by that change in pitch mix. I don't know what's the cause of it, but it's been that way in his first four starts, and so there's got to be an explanation. I went back to his game logs last year, and this has never happened. So there's got to be something, and if he continues this pitch mix, I don't have high hopes of a rebound here. I don't remember what uh, Kevin Gosman's injury history is, but I know I've read that sometimes some pitchers find that throwing the uh, throwing that hard sinking uh, uh, sinker uh, is really hard on the elbow. I know the slider has a reputation of that, but could Kevin Gosman just be trying to avoid an elbow injury by switching his pitches? I mean, that's a possibility, and the thing is, is that as fantasy owners, we just never know. I mean, until we hear those whispers, and then you hear, oh, Kevin Gossman leaves his start with elbow soreness. We just don't know. Yeah, the uh, split finger pitch I've heard is is pretty tough on the elbow. I don't know, again, I don't know what Kevin Gosman's elbow history is like, but I wonder if that's something to do with it, because it's so unusual for a pitcher to finally get some good success, as Gosman was having, and then change everything uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, over in the National League, Mike, who's your pitcher you think is a sell low? This is a good guy to discuss, and I wish we had more time, but Kyle Hendricks, obviously he was a a really surprisingly shocking performance last year, and 
His fastball, though, it was already low in terms of velocity when he was sitting in the high 80s the last couple of years. But this year, it's down about three miles an hour. It's, it's basically like 85 miles an hour, uh, almost Jared Weaver levels. And, and so when you take a, a fastball that's not fast to begin with and you make it even slower, then that's a real problem. And it's killing the whiffiness. And I know I'm making up this word, but whiffiness should definitely be a word. Killing the whiffiness of his changeup, pushing down his strikeout rate. He's throwing fewer strikes, which has boosted his walk rate. And he's gotten by with a, a low BABIP. So basically, if you can't really count on a low BABIP, and his fastball now, hitters are teeing off because it's coming in at 85 miles an hour, what do you have left? Nothing really. So unless he gets back that fastball velocity, uh, I don't have high hopes here. Mike Podhorzer's duds, Carlos Beltran of the Kansas City Royals, Keon Broxton of Milwaukee on the hitting side, and for his pitchers, Baltimore's Kevin Gosman and the Cubs' Kyle Hendricks. Uh, boy, Mike, this has been a treat. To tell our listeners where they can read more of Mike Podhorzer. I'm on the Rotograph side of Fangraphs.com, and then, of course, you could purchase my ebook, Projecting X 2.0, How to Forecast Baseball Player Performance at ProjectingX.com. And uh, in the off-season and heading into the season, my player projections are available as well. And do you have a Twitter handle that people can follow? I do. It's, it's really difficult, and it took me hours and hours to come up with such a clever name. It's at Mike Podhorzer. I know, I know. How if anybody needs advice on Twitter handles, I'm the one to come to. I can't figure it out, but I'll have fun thinking about it for the rest of the night. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for helping us out. It's been a delight, as always, full of great information. And uh, now my only challenge is to try to catch up with you in Tout Wars American League, which I think I'm going to do, by the way. Oh, oh, is that so? Yeah. Good luck the rest of the way. Always a pleasure. Mike Podhorzer is a Rotographs columnist at Fangraphs.com and does detailed player projections at ProjectingX.com, where you can also order Mike's ebook, Projecting X 2.0, How to Forecast Baseball Player Performance. Next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up with great information across all the major fantasy formats, news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In playing time today, coverage of Johnny Peralta, Matt Kemp, Jose Iglesias, Logan Forsythe, Jay Happ, Justin Upton, and others. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd assesses the performances of Joey Votto, Dan Straley, Manuel Margot, and more. And in the eyes have it, Brent Hershey goes to A-Ball to scout some teenage prospects. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, the full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. And if you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers, our pitcher matchups report, and master notes. And leading off, it's our playing time commentary, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at the underrated effects of batting order position. And here to tell you more, once again, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. While we often look at roster moves or guys switching roles, both in this segment and in our playing time tomorrow columns on the site, sometimes it's the smaller changes, like guys moving up or down the batting order, that can lead to larger fantasy impacts. Greg Pyron looked at one potential case in Atlanta in his playing time tomorrow piece this week, where he noted that Dansby Swanson has struggled mightily out of the gate. Swanson's just eight for his first 61 with one homer and no steals. A move down from the second spot in the order might be in store to try and help Swanson turn things around. That could be of benefit to others on Atlanta's roster, including Adonis Garcia, who at second for the Braves on April 20th. And though Garcia is struggling with a 175 batting average, that's been due to a nasty 18% hit rate or 180 Babbitt through his first 53 at-bats. Garcia makes frequent contact. He's got an 83% contact rate last season that led to a 273 batting average, and we're projecting something similar for 2017. Garcia doesn't pack a whole lot of pop, but he did flash league average power in the second half of 2016, and those extra plate appearances, if he were to stick near the top, could lead to a mid-teens home run total, which gives Garcia value in deep leagues. So the larger point here is to look at batting order changes here in the early goings. Atlanta's just one example, but Kyle Schwarber's been leading off for the Cubs. Andrew Benintendi's hitting second for a potent Red Sox lineup. Corey Dickerson is leading off in Tampa, etc., etc. The extra plate appearances at the top of the order can be an underrated boost to one's counting stats and overall fantasy outlook. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are St. Louis outfielder Jose Martinez and Philadelphia right-handed starter Nick Pivetta. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Longtime Detroit Tigers announcer Ernie Harwell once lamented that baseball is a rookie, his experience no bigger than the lump in his throat as he begins fulfillment of his dream. Our first frequent flyer can certainly relate. It's been a long 10-year journey to the big leagues for 28-year-old St. Louis rookie outfielder Jose Martinez. After battling serious injuries and even playing independent ball in 2013, Jose Martinez was designated for assignment by the Royals last May and was ultimately traded to the Cardinals for cash. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for a player who led the hitter-friendly Pacific Coast League in 2015 with a 384 batting average and a 1,024 OPS. And he was batting 298 through 98 games for the Omaha Storm Chasers in 2016 before being traded to the Cardinals. Plus, he batted 438 in a brief September call-up in 2016, is currently batting 450 for the Cardinals in 2017. But although Jose Martinez can obviously hit for average, he doesn't offer much in terms of power or speed. 11 home runs, 11 steals of the minors in 2016 were both career highs. 
Plus, Jose Martinez currently appears to be stuck as the Cardinals' fourth outfielder in 2017. That's why Jose Martinez, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Still, with Randall Grichik batting only 185, opportunity may be knocking for Jose Martinez. An opportunity could soon be knocking for 24-year-old Philadelphia Phillies right-handed starter Nick Pavetta, who recently earned his third victory of the young 2017 season by striking out a career-high 11 batters in six innings on April 20th. Our own Phil Hertz, as April 12th playing time today column on BaseballHQ.com, speculated that Nick Pavetta could be one of the candidates to replace the injured Clay Buckholz, who is likely out for the season. Although Zach Eflin received the call to replace Buckholz, Nick Pavetta, especially if he keeps pitching this way, may not be far behind. Nick Pavetta's elite career dominance rate of 7.5 strikeouts per nine in the minors suggests his 3-0 record as .95 ERA through his first three starts of 2017 might not be a fluke, despite the small sample size. While we're obviously not saying that Nick Pavetta will go undefeated with an ERA below 1 in 2017, we are saying that he's worth a look in deeper leagues. Even Baseball HQ's 2017 minor league baseball analyst calls Nick Pavetta an intriguing under-the-radar arm with a power pitcher's build and velocity. In other words, Nick Pavetta seems to fit our frequent flyer profile perfectly. Remember, we're looking for under-the-radar players like Jose Martinez and Nick Pavetta, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale that's centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong starts. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong sits. Between the ones, that's what we call the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider those based on your own appetite for risk. With a look at weekend matchups including Arizona left-hander Robbie Ray and Mets star Matt Harvey, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. If you're looking for a sure thing this weekend, you're out of luck. In an odd array of matchup ratings, not one Saturday or Sunday starter is in our recommended range. Our marquee matchup features the only one of the weekend in which both starters have positive matchup ratings. And the marquee man has the closest thing there is to a recommended matchup rating at 097. He's Arizona left-hander Robbie Ray, who draws the first start of a homestand for the Diamondbacks. The visiting L.A. Dodgers counter with right-hander Kenta Maeda. Maeda has a matchup rating of 018, which happens to match his uniform number. Remember, we're relying on 2016 starting pitcher performance metrics and team statistics to calculate our April matchup ratings. In our first report of 2017, we went over the woes of the 2016 Dodgers against left-handers such as Robbie Ray. To review, versus Southpaw starters, LA posted the majors' worst on-base plus slugging percentage, or OPS, at 622. Overall, the Dodgers were two games under 500 against lefties, and they were five games under 500 on the road. But LA won the division and the Snakes were far from frightening. Versus right-handers like Maeda, the 2016 D-backs ranked 28th, losing 25 more games than they won. Arizona also ranked 28th in home record, going 15 games under 500. And Chase Field aids run production by 15%, second only to Coors Field in the National League. So why should we even consider starting Robbie Ray on Saturday? To begin with, Robbie Ray's elite dominance rate reached 12.1 strikeouts per nine innings pitched in the second half of 2016, second only to the late Jose Fernandez. 
Further, RaysBaseballHQ.com pitcher link page is filled with more than a dozen increasingly positive reports noting the 25-year-old lefty's progress. In 2016, Ray was victimized by a hit rate of 37%, though some of that was his own doing. With a first pitch strike rate of 56%, Ray got behind in too many counts and came back with pitches in the hitting zone too often. His hard hit rate was also 37%. But Ray's 2016 expected ERA was 362, his base performance value was 128, and his base performance index was 152, meaning Robbie Ray's metrics were 52% better than the league average. Ray faced L.A. four times last season and pitched more innings against them than any other opponent. The results? An expected ERA of 336 and a whip of 112. Two PQS decent threes, a PQS dominant four, and a PQS dominant five. Robbie Ray is this weekend's marquee matchup. We'll stay in the National League for our Saturday surprise, and we'll change things up a bit, too. Instead of finding someone with a surprisingly strong start matchup rating, this time the surprise is that the New York Mets' Matt Harvey has a strong sit matchup recommendation of minus 143. Harvey will be at home against Washington left-hander Gio Gonzalez, who has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 068. On the road, the 2016 Nationals won nine more games than they lost, ranking fourth in the major leagues. Versus right-handers, they won 22 more games than they lost, ranking third. Head-to-head against the Mets, Washington was 12-7, outscoring the New Yorkers 81-50. At home, the 2016 Mets ranked 15th, winning seven more games than they lost. Against left-handers, they ranked 13th, winning one more game than they lost. After missing all of 2014 with Tommy John surgery, Matt Harvey missed half of 2016 with thoracic outlet syndrome surgery. The track record for Major League starting pitchers returning from thoracic outlet syndrome surgery is too short to reveal any patterns. Prior to his surgery last year, Harvey posted career worsts in expected ERA, whip, strikeouts per nine, base performance value, base performance index, and PQS dominant to disaster ratio, with 18% PQS dominant starts and 41% PQS disaster starts. In his first three starts of 2017, Harvey has been PQS decent, but he's faced Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Miami. Matt Harvey is this weekend's Saturday surprise because it may be best to sit him against his first strong opponent of 2017. Now let's conclude with a scan of some other matchup ratings for the rest of the weekend. The 36 risk-reward wildcard matchup ratings other than Robbie Ray's are too numerous to mention, so we'll list the 21 starting pitchers other than Matt Harvey who have strong sit recommendations. In the American League on Saturday, it's Houston's Charlie Morton, Minnesota's Adalberto Mejia, and Seattle's Ariel Miranda who should scare you off. On Sunday, avoid the Astros' Joe Musgrove, the Royals' Jason Hamill, the Angels' Jesse Chavez, the Twins' Kyle Gibson, the Yankees' Jordan Montgomery, the Athletics' Andrew Triggs, and the Mariners' Giovanni Gallardo. In the National League on Saturday, stay away from Cincinnati's Cody Reed, Colorado's Antonio Senzatella, San Diego's Jared Weaver, San Francisco's Matt Moore, and St. Louis' Lance Lynn. On Sunday, it's the D-backs' Shelby Miller, the Reds' Bronson Arroyo, the Rockies' Kyle Freeland, the Mets' Zach Wheeler, the Padres' Zach Lee, and the Giants' Jeff Samarja, who should be on your bench. And here's hoping you'll be neither a bench warmer nor a bottom feeder in your leagues this year. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about some early weirdness on pitchers' mounds. 
I like oddities, and just about two weeks into the fantasy baseball season, we're seeing some very odd oddities indeed. I've always found that the place to look for early weirdness is in the ranks of pitchers. I looked on Thursday at the 132 pitchers who had faced at least 50 batters through Wednesday's games, and sure enough, there's some interesting weirdness going on. I focused on my new pet metric, net good minus bad outcomes. I've tweaked that metric a little since the last time I talked about it. Good pitcher outcomes now include strikeouts, soft and medium hit ground balls, soft and medium hit fly balls, and infield flies. Bad outcomes are hard ground balls and fly balls, all line drives, walks, and hit batsmen. The key metric will be the total percentage of good outcomes minus the total percentage of bad outcomes. I'm going to call it net good percentage, and in this master notes I'll just call it net percentage. One of the pleasant slash weird surprises this young season has been the comeback of Phil Hughes, who is two wins and one loss and has provided $7 so far in rotisserie value. You might think this makes Hughes a worthy candidate for a fab investment. If you do, there's a Nigerian prince somewhere who will probably pay me for your email address. Hughes's 540 ERA and 140 whip should be enough to dissuade you from making a fab investment. But if not, keep in mind that Hughes's minus 8% net percentage is the worst in the group and one of just seven pitchers under sea level. His bad percentage in particular is the worst of the group by far, 61% bad outcomes, 23 points higher than the league average. In a nutshell, he's just giving up way too much hard contact. 53% of his batters faced get hard contact off Phil Hughes versus 30% for the average of all group pitchers. Especially ripped line drives, which he's surrendering at twice the league average. His hard hit fly ball percentage is one and a half times the league average, so more home runs are in the offing. If you gambled on Hughes as an end gamer and you're tempted to ride your lucky streak, just remember, Las Vegas was built on gamblers riding lucky streaks. Justin Verlander of the Tigers hasn't looked especially sharp this year to date, a 571 ERA 144 whip and just one win in three starts. Worth $6 on the young season, though, thanks to 18 strikeouts in 17 innings. Verlander's plus 15% net is the 10th worst in the cohort, as both his good and bad outcomes are on the wrong side of league average. Now, on the surface, it looks like Verlander's main issue might just have been simple gopheritis. He has surrendered three biggins in his 17 and a third innings, and that's a worrying 1.6 home runs per nine. Here's the kicker, though. Verlander is at 25% home run per hard hit flyball rate, five points under the game-wide average. Verlander was a great story last year and as a result went for some solid dollars this year. One more tidbit, in 2014, when Verlander was a minus $5 starter, his swinging strike rate was around 10%. Same in 2015. Last year, when he notched his $31 comeback, 13%. And this year, right back down to 10 If you're a Verlander owner and someone else comes sniffing around to see if you're selling low, don't automatically brush him off. There are times when selling low is a good tactic, and Verlander is a big name who might fetch a decent return. Cleveland ace right-hander Corey Kluber got bids approaching $30 in some experts' leagues and has thus far been a raging disappointment. One win, two PQS disasters in his three starts, and a 638 ERA 142 whip. 
His saving grace has been 18 strikeouts in 18 innings, which has kept him above the value waterline at 3 or 4 bucks in 5x5. Five five. Now, if you're looking for things to turn around, you better be wary of Kluber's year-to-date outcomes. He has given up hard contact to almost half the batters he's faced and has a 19% hard-hit flyball percentage that makes him full value for five home runs allowed and the concomitant low strand rate and high ERA that go with it. Similarly, his hard-hit ground ball percent is nearly double the league average, and his overall line drive percent is higher than league average as well. So there's the source of all those hits and the high whip. His walk rate's actually very low. That's good, but something's going on here, and it ain't good. Now here's something peculiar. Boston knuckleballer Stephen Wright has given up only five hard-hit fly balls all year while facing 67 hitters. Amazingly, all five of those hard-hit fly balls went out of the yard. Stephen Wright has a 100% home run per hard-hit fly ball rate. Don't let this note fool you into thinking better times are a-coming, though. Wright is one of the negative net percent pitchers, giving up way more hard contact than league average, especially hard line drives and hard fly balls. Even if he gets that home run per hard-hit fly ball rate down to a more normal level, he'll still be serving more taters than an Irish buffet. Here's something even more peculiar. Toronto left-handed reliever Matt Dermody fixed six batters in his one big league appearance against the Orioles. His first hitter, Trey Mancini, homered. Then Jonathan Scope singled. J.J. Hardy popped out, that's because he's on my roto team. Then noted slugger Craig Gentry homered. Adam Jones walked, and then Manny Machado homered. That was Dermody's third home run allowed in the inning. The end result for the shell-shocked Matt Dermody, an ERA of 135, a whip of 2.0, a 100% home run per hard hit fly ball rate, and a 270 home runs per nine. He was sent back to the minors, in case you were hoping to sign him for your Bizarro League. Okay, enough with Davitt's downer diatribe. For now, anyway, let's turn the net percent the other way around and find pitchers who are getting it done. The top 10 in net percent includes Jacob deGrom, Dallas Koichel, Max Scherzer, Noah Syndergaard, and Jake Arrieta, so names you'd expect. But there are quite a few surprises, starting with Phil Hughes' rotation stablemate, Irvin Santana. Santana, of course, has started the season 3-0, with an 0-41 ERA and an 0-45 whip, despite only a league average 20% strikeout rate. What stands out for Santana is that he's inducing soft and medium hit grounders and flies, all those easy outs, from more than half the batters he's faced. The league average is 40%. At the same time, Santana has given up a very low number of hard hit balls. Just 17% of batters faced have squared him up, well below the 30% league average. Of course, one big caveat in all of this Two of Santana's three starts have come against the White Sox, who have the third lowest OPS in the majors, and his other start was against Kansas City, the fourth lowest. There was some preseason sleeper buzz around Philadelphia right-hander Jared Eikhoff, and those who threw a couple of bucks into that particular pot are reaping a nice profit. In three starts, Eikhoff has a 275 ERA, 112 whip, and 18 strikeouts in 20 innings. There might be some concern in your league about Eikhoff's low 26% hit rate and his 84% strand rate. 
Those will depress his rate stats, but our standards in those regards are driven by certain expectations about league standard batted ball outcomes. Eikhoff thus far has been far from standard. He has induced 49% soft and medium hit grounders and flies, including an astonishing 27% medium fly ball rate. I was going to call that MHFB, but it sounds a little too much like a party hallucinogen. Whatever you call it, it's two and a half times the league rate for cans of corn, those short fly balls that prevent runners from advancing. That depresses both hit rate and strand rate. Now, Eikhoff's 2017 medium hit fly ball rate is more than double his 2016 rate, and it's so far beyond the norm that we should expect some regression towards the low teens. At the same time, we might anticipate some increase in Eikhoff's very low 6% hard-hit fly ball rate, which is currently about half the league norm. But all that said, Eikhoff is a very low-walk command artist, and he appears to know how to pitch. A few owners were wise to the potential of Oakland right-hander Andrew Triggs, and he's rewarded them by ripping three useful starts in a row. He's a sinker-slider ground ball specialist, also throws a cutter to right-handed hitters, and he has sunk, slid, and cut his way to an 085 whip and has yet to allow an earned run. He's also plus 48% on the net percent scale, well inside the top 10. That's largely due to a 30% medium ground ball percentage, trailing only Clayton Richards' 34% mark. As well, Triggs has prevented hard contact, 12 points under the 30% league average, and he walks very few hitters. Both last year and this year to date, his walk rate has been around 2.1 per 9 innings. We might expect some regression-related declines in his outsized medium ground ball percent, but we might also expect a regression improvement in his current 13% strikeout rate. Most owners will be delighted with Triggs' hot start, but if his owner in your league is thinking of selling high, again, you might want to listen with a view towards obliging his wish. Other high performers in net percent, DeGrom at plus 59, Koichel at plus 54, Scherzer at plus 53, Arietta at plus 53, Luis Severino at plus 48%. You'll remember that Mike Podhorzer mentioned him as a buy-high candidate. James Paxton is at plus 47, Miguel Gonzalez is plus 44, Michael Pineda at plus 44, Syndergaard at plus 43, Danny Duffy at plus 41, and Mike Leak at plus 40. Other guys at the bottom of the barrel, Jake Odorizzi at minus 7, Martin Perez at minus 5, Austin Pruitt at minus 4, Brett Anderson at minus 1, Annabel Sanchez is right at 0, Josh Tomlin is at plus 2, Jaime Garcia plus 5, Jeremy Hellickson plus 5, Adam Wainwright plus 7, Jeff Samarge is at plus 7, and Mike Podhorzer mentioned him as a buy high as well, Alex Cobb is plus 8. Yu Darvish at plus 9, Mike Fultonevich at plus 9, Jordan Zimmerman at plus 9, Aaron Sanchez plus 9, Jarrell Cotton at plus 9, and Marcus Stroman at plus 9. couple of J's there. As usual, the caveat of small samples applies, so don't rush out and trade Corey Kluber for Jared Eikhoff. But do keep an eye on these pitchers and the others at the extreme ends of the net percent spectrum. The complete table is available in the online version of this article, free at BaseballHQ.com, or if you want a copy, email us here at BaseballHQRadio, BHQRadio at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up.
Of course, we also have Master Notes here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 15 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Mike Podhorzer, Rotographs columnist at Fangraphs.com. Mike's a very smart and innovative fantasy baseball researcher and writer, and he's a darn tough competitor in the game, I can tell you. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Jock Thompson and Ryan Bloomfield, also our Playing Time commentator. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, and our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.